Protect Your Neck Podcast, UFC 249 Breakdown, Picks, Plays, and whatever else comes our way. Let's go. Vision, dreams of passion. What is up, you savages? This is the Protect Your Neck Podcast, and I'm your host, Dan Tom. Analyst is work you can find over at MMAJunkie.com. But on this year's program, the Protect Your Neck Podcast, we break down high-level MMA. That's what we're going to do here today. Tonight, whenever you're listening to this, hopefully it is before the fight, recording this uh, around 7 or 8 p.m. Pacific time in the West Coast United States. For UFC 249, which is going down on the opposite end of the U.S. in Jacksonville, Florida. Um, thank you guys for joining me, especially if you're joining on iTunes, Apple Podcasts. A little five-star rating and review there. Going to be getting this up, just an audio version, probably just an icon if you're, you're uh, listening to this on the old YouTube. I've... I've I've upstarted that channel finally since the last breakdown show. Of course, the Protecting Act podcast, that's what we specialize in in breakdown shows. But with the old COVID-19 thing of 2020, we've been leaning on top fives, um, introducing live MMA chats, which uh, we'll still lean on when the time call for it. Uh, as far as live YouTube stuff, we'll be kind of uh, shifting over and doing live post-fight uh, recap uh, shows uh, starting with UFC 249 so be sure to join me there youtube.com uh, forward slash Daniel Tom MMA uh, hit the old subscribe there all right pleasantries out of the way it I'm not gonna lie it's um it feels good to be breaking down fights again it's a nice distraction it's also nice because this distraction is also my job and it, and it pays me um, so I would be lying um, if there wasn't benefit, and uh, I'd be lying if I said I wasn't excited to break down some fights. So um, that being said, I, I'm not doing it without conscience, believe me. Not, this isn't a political podcast. We are going to push on to the breakdown, which, of course, uh, for those of you not familiar, all these breakdown shows are timestamp at appropriate times in case you want to jump ahead. Again, I don't blame you if you don't want to listen to me, although we were going to keep these pretty just business here. And as per usual, I recap my picks and plays at the very end of the episode in case you are in a rush. Um, but I just do want to say off the top and just kind of get it out of the way that, yeah, I'm not doing this without a conscious. Of course, I'm, 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 I'm wishing the fighters and everybody safety. I know fighters uh, competing uh, down at these multiple events. They'll be May 9th, 13th, and 16th. Um, I know corners. Uh, and I know media members, of course, uh, shouts to my colleague, John Morgan. Make sure you're following him on Twitter. Uh, he's providing us over there, a junkie with uh, on-the-ground coverage. And uh, make sure you check out his podcast as well, the MMA Roadshow. Um, for all the details as far as testing and all that kind of cool details uh, for that stuff. Because you're not going to get it here. You get weird uh, technical details, impressions, and weird funny tidbits and stories sometimes. Hopefully, you walk away with something whether it's entertainment or some knowledge for your fantasy or gambling uh, plays, or if you just want to, you know, brag to your friends and act like you know something, whatever your listen, uh, your your listening reason is, know that I appreciate it. Okay, um, but yeah, of course, I'm hoping for a safe uh, event, as safe as can be, and you guys know my stance. 
Uh, I'm just rolling with the punches and erring on the side of caution. That's kind of been as consistent as uh, as I could be as far as uh, you know as as far as all this going on. So believe me, um, not doing it without a conscious. You know, I'm not not uh you know uh unaware of, of, of what it, you know everybody's struggling through in fact you know not to get too into it but you know um, got a lot of medical struggles on, on my family especially this week I've been dealing with the stepdad in and out of the hospital because he can't get a surgery um, because uh, you know they're really really reserving what they do and what they don't do making room for um, potential COVID cases again we're still still getting a lot of deaths here Every day, at least U.S. wide. Uh, hopefully, you guys are all well. Whether you are, wherever you are in the world, doesn't matter because we're all human beings, folks. Um, but yeah, so again, I believe me, I'm, I'm affected. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I have people at these events uh, that I care for. So um, now that that's said, uh, you know, uh, the, the, of course, we're all wishing for the best. I'm gonna go ahead and and uh, get on with my job and break down these fights top to bottom as we usually do in this show. Um, not too much of an interview show, and I'm not too much of an interview person. Again, I'm not a journalist, nor I claim to be. Um, you know, mar- lifelong martial artist, competitor, and a uh, fan who got into this by accident, folks. That being said, I, I, I do try to practice journalistic integrity when I do cover shows in person, albeit not my beat. And uh, I try to do the best job I can when it comes to interviews, although there are plenty, whether it's my colleagues, a junkie, or, you know, um, co- you know, uh, C- colleagues that I don't technically work with, but respect, like the James Lynch's or the Aaron Bronstetters of the world, etc. Plenty of people that are much better at interviews than I am. Uh, of course, shouts to my my bros there, gorgeous George and Ghost. Um, but uh, you know, every once in a while, I remember I'm like, oh, Dan, you know, actually, you know, you actually have a kind of relationships and connections with people, and um, you know, uh, you can reach out, believe it or not, and things can happen. Uh, and I tend to forget that as obvious as it is. So I was like, you know what? As I try to re-break down instead of repackaging the same old breakdown for you, even though it's the same people as far as the top of the bill, which is going to be Tony Ferguson, Just- Justin Gaethje, who we'll talk about first, followed by the second title fight, which is an actual title fight, albeit you know people may scoff when I say that because of the matchmaking. But uh, you got Henry Cejudo, the champ, defending against the greatest bantamweight of all time, in the opinion of me and many, uh, Dominic Cruz. Um, y'all know I'm a dominant crew stand. Don't need to go into that. We'll go into the breakdown appropriately. But before uh, we get into those and the subsequent rest of the fights, I just want to queue up an interview I did with uh, Mike Dulce because, again, when I was looking at this fight, I think the turnarounds was a big thing, you know, whether we're talking about um, the short turnaround of uh, Gaethje and Tony Ferguson. Uh, of course, we're talking about Tony Ferguson a lot with his, he actually went through with the weight cut, but, you know, Gaethje is going through a turnaround as well. You know, uh, he didn't go through with the weight cut, but I think he got 12 bounds or something in a short amount of time because he got originally took the fight on short notice, right, folks? I'm talking about the April 18th date. And then uh, he pulled off the gas and then got back on it um, after the fight got negotiated. You know, how many days were in between? What was the psychology like as well as the physiology? You know, did he... Did the, did the fighter stuff their face, you know? Uh, they, they tend to do that after, you know? Um, which is why it was such a big deal and such a mental statement. Um, me and many have talked about as far as Tony Ferguson making the weight. Uh, what does that do to Justin? Is, is You know, um, we're focusing on Tony. Are we focusing on the wrong person? 
kind of go over that with Mike Dolce. We talk about Dominic Cruz as well because we're talking about short turnarounds and weight cuts. What about uh, long times out like, like Cruz has? You know, he had about four weeks. Um, and uh, if you go back and Cruz's social media, he's been pretty active and looking in pretty decent shape, you know, going all the way back to January, which is um, a pretty good sign. Uh, so the guy was kind of just biding his time, and we'll we'll kind of get into what I was looking at and specifically in, in his social medias. But um, before I get into the weeds of the breakdowns and we go from our top to bottom, uh, I'm going to queue up an interview you can find over at MMA Junkie. Uh, I'm going to queue it up to you in full. Uh, Timestamps if you want to jump ahead, folks, in the show notes. Uh, here I am speaking with uh, Mike Dulce, who I appreciate his time. Dan Tom here with MMA Junkie, and I wanted to speak to a professional ahead of UFC 249, of course, the adjusted UFC 249 on May 9th. We have Tony Ferguson versus Justin Gaethje in the main event. Of course, Tony Ferguson will be doing back-to-back weight cuts, so I wanted to speak with Mike Dulce, who you can find on Twitter, at the Dulce Diet, of course, his website, thedulcediet.com. Mike, thank you for joining me today. Dan, happy to be here, man. Once again, it's always good to see you and talk MMA. Yeah, not in the uh, normal studios as we're accustomed to, but we both got our setups here, and so let's uh, l- let's break down the the facts. This isn't uh, going to be any type of character assassination or character assessment on Tony Ferguson anyway. We want to yeah. you know keep it to the facts. So what better person to bring in than Mike Dulce? Obviously, Mike, you've heard of Tony Ferguson uh, originally scheduled for this bout. It got canceled on April 18th. Tony went ahead and continued to make that cut on the 17th, citing himself that he cut. 24 pounds in four days because it just made sense according to tony ferguson of course we're we're not going to tread too deep into those waters but that was his official statement mike he did officially make the weight he showed it to us on social media now he's got to turn back around three weeks later and make the weight obviously everybody knows your experience you have plenty of experience from 135 145 on up in and out of the cage helping people with their nutrition give us give us your reaction i guess to this news and let's go from there Well, first, I think Tony's weight cut is indicative of his personality and his mentality. That's the most important factor for a professional athlete, specifically for a professional fighter. Tony Ferguson is a deep water type of athlete, and he's refining his ability to go into those deep waters. I think this weight cut three weeks ago allows Tony a mental advantage over his opposition, where Tony knows he's literally willing to risk his health and well-being in order to win. And we've seen Tony go through that many times inside the octagon. I don't see a negative impact on his performance as a result of the weight cut. I do think this, if nothing else, has steeled his own iron will to go out there and compete against someone like Justin Gaethje, who's a violent man who's a great fighter, who's a scary man in many ways. And I see lots of elite athletes like Tony Ferguson put challenges along the way, making the process even more difficult, essentially testing themselves to make sure that their their merit is still there. And I think Tony has passed all of these challenges with flying colors. I mean, think about just the change of opponent, change of date, location. I mean, so many things have changed about this, but I think a guy like Tony has proven 
that he's adaptable and he's ready to get in there and pull out victory regardless of the circumstances. Awesome, Mike. So in other words, uh, again, you're no stranger to peak performance, what that means, and getting an athlete to their peak performance. Obviously, this game is very much mental. Uh, even though your skills are advertised as far as the physical, the facts, what the scale says, you're obviously a fighter. You've been in these deep camps. You know the mental side of it. So pretty much what you're saying, what I'm getting is that he, mentally he didn't take a break from peaking whereas if you get you know uh, the exercise or the nutrition part that could kind of falter your peak much less a mental uh falter which we could argue is even stronger than the previously mentioned one so what you're saying is that by tony keeping course he wasn't really he didn't really have to get off course at all he was able to stay mentally strong but as far as the physical side you also think that there won't be any negatives as far as that goes assuming he's doing you know a quote-unquote uh proper cut well, and, and that, that's the question because I, I don't know exactly what Tony did, so I, I can't speak to his process. And it's not just the ability to drop the weight and make the weight, but it's the managing of the rehydration, ensuring Tony has everything he needs on a physiological level in order to maintain or reclaim a balance of, of homeostasis, to make sure the biological organism is now perfectly prepared and ready to continue training. Because three weeks out, that's really where the peaking phase begins. For most athletes, if, if you know these mixed martial artists are training properly, they're, they're, they're employing you know 2,020 protocols as far as science and performance science really should say, about 21 days out is where the peaking phase begins. We'll take that 21-day period. We'll cut that down into so 21 days, down to 10 days, down to 5 days, to 3 days, and then it's every 12 hours we start to tweak the peak as we go through Tony again he had not a true peak with the weight cut he dropped the weight which I like because Tony being 174 and I did want to speak to this 174 four days before 155 that that aspect concerns me to a degree now Tony's not a a big man he's a big lightweight but he's not a big man. So if he's 179 pounds going into a 155 bout and he's losing that those 24 pounds over a four-day period, that's a little disconcerting. But that could be hyperbole. That could be a little poetic license. That could be some gamesmanship. And that could be fun. So I don't know that I will truly accept that he was – 179 wake up weight first thing in the morning dried out for on the Tuesday before a, a Friday weigh-in. I don't necessarily know that's true because Tony is a consummate professional. I don't know that Tony regularly shows up for UFC fight weeks that far above his weight class. Now, you show up at, at 179 for 155 bout. You're going to have Jeff, Jeff Nowitzki is basically going to pull out a cot and move into your hotel room. So I, I don't know exactly that's true. If that is true, that would be the most disconcerting thing about this. Not the cut itself, but that he was so heavy so early. But then this cut could have been a godsend. If he was that heavy, he brought his weight down to 55, we would refill, bring him back up essentially probably to, you know, that 168, 172 region and let him float and balance there. Remember I said, you know, the, the peaking phase for those first 11 days to get that balance. And then we would start that 10 day drop once again, going more from like a 168 to a 155, making his second cut not even a cut anymore. Then it just becomes a very soft landing. Instead of a check mark, 
you have more of a, a, a sweeping um, U bottom instead of that V bottom. Now, this is we work with also, you know, D1 collegiate wrestlers. These guys and gals, they're cutting two, three, four times a week. They're cutting multiple times in a weekend. And this is the mental toughness. It doesn't adversely affect the wrestlers. They go and win national champions. They be, go on to become All-Americans. They're cutting weight 20, 30, 40 times during a you know, two, three, four-month season. We're only worried about Tony cutting twice over three weeks. So let's put things in context here. And this does pull from my experience, right, because we've been doing this a really long time in all different sports, a multitude of sports. And that's just a little bit more context. Awesome. And this is great context. So since you're providing such great context, Mike, let me ask you one more question uh, that will take us a little further down the speculation theory. But sure. uh, as far as that, you know, peaking, repeaking, rehydrating, repacking, does the fact that because you mentioned Tony, he's a tall, lightweight, he's a long, lightweight in no way are we calling him a small man in that sense. But like you said, frame wise, he's not like a Tyrone Woodley packing muscle. That muscle doesn't have maybe the same rehydration demands. And of course, Tony Ferguson is much more of a cardiovascular output kind of athlete, his fighting style, etc. Being a heart, a high cardio guy, both in training and in the cage, if you will, um, would that make it easier for, for, for athletes with your experience to maintain this kind of said weight? To be walking around lighter, is that what you mean? Yeah, and not, not having to, you know, with the worry uh, of playing with the science as far as repacking, how much we had to play with what's going to be releasing to repacking as far as that goes. Yeah, I, I think every athlete should be, you know, over the years, we've come up with some pretty specific uh, protocols and just based upon the metrics. I mean, I have, I have data on every single athlete I've ever worked with. All of their data, their body weight, their blood work, their bowel movements even, um, how much weight they cut, the amount of weight they would lose per minute during cuts at altitude, at sea level, in Brazil in the winter, in, in Las Vegas in, in the summer. We have all that data and all that those, those metrics. What we've found, the athletes who compete at the highest levels of their potential, and the potential is different, like a GSP has a certain potential preset, and another athlete might not have that, but a GSP can underperform his potential preset and another athlete can overperform or maximize theirs. Now, it doesn't mean they might beat GSP, but our goal is to get every athlete to utilize, and we can't say overperform their preset because there is a, a limited ceiling built in. But with that being said, we found the athletes who live and breathe and walk around closer to competition weight are the athletes who perform better. The athletes who do get closer to their genetic potential, if you will, they are able to compete at high velocity during multi-round fights, round three, round four, round five. How many athletes, and I can think of some great athletes, that they're seven-minute athletes. Chael Sonnen said, within seven minutes, you know who's trained and who hasn't trained. You can get through the first you know, seven minutes of a fight based upon adrenaline and, and raw talent. After minute seven, you see athletes second round, they start to bonk out. Third round, another athlete will steal it away because they're not even as good. Round one is usually for the genetic superior. Round three is for the athlete who's come closer to their genetic potential. So now back to Tony. With that being said, and again, I can't speak to Tony, so this is a little, little conjecture here. Excuse me. I, I don't know Tony on a personal level. I've never seen his blood work and, and all those other things. Excuse me. Phone's blowing up. They think they, they, they know I'm talking to Dan Tom of MMA Junkie right now. Um, but that being said, I would theorize that Tony walking around leaner and lighter, more durable, more adaptable, not having to worry about it. I mean, because that's 
If he's losing 24 pounds in four days, that's a 24-pound water cut. That is literally three gallons of water he has to squeeze out of his body. And use that, that visual right there. He has to somehow squeeze three gallons of water from his body. That, you cannot do that healthy. You can mitigate risk. You can mediate the damage. But the totality of that process is not a healthy process. We know the healthier the athlete, the greater levels the athlete can perform and the more stress the athlete can actually endure during that period of time. So again, if Tony's weight, if that 179 is accurate, that 179 turns into 169, one, you, know, one, you know, 170 or so. Now we're talking about a 15-pound swing, which is a 10% cap. And what our data shows, the athletes who live within that 10% cap of their competition weight by far outperform the athletes who don't, who roller coaster or zigzag high and low. Once we eliminate this zigzag and we kind of keep it a little more balanced, it becomes very easy to manage their weight also to enhance performance because now the athlete doesn't spend bulk of their training time losing weight. And I'll finish on this. Many athletes, their training camp becomes a weight cut camp, a weight loss camp. We hear it all the time. The athlete then, eight weeks before the fight, they stop getting better as an athlete and they simply have to lose weight. If the athletes would take the 52 weeks before the fight mentality, be professionals 52 weeks before the fight, get their weight into a manageable range, then every single day, every session of training camp, they can keep getting better and not worry about their weight because the weight becomes very easy to pull off at the end if everything is done correctly. I like that seven minutes example. I also like the context as far as the person doing the discipline. Again, uh, people who have followed your work, you reference as far as lifestyle, you use that word a lot. And I think that for any criticisms or speculations, anyone can levy Tony Ferguson's way. I think one thing we can all agree on is the guy is dedicated and yep. disciplined. So very great points there, Mike. Thank you. Before we get out of here, I also got to ask you about the co-main event. Um, not as big of a storyline. Weight cutting-wise, Dominic Cruz, like Tony Ferguson, has never had trouble uh, making the weight, albeit Dominic Cruz, I would argue, is still a big bantamweight, uh, even for this era. Uh, uh, Dominic Cruz obviously coming off a layoff. He is 34, going to be going on 35. I, I was also born in 1985, so I'm not trying to come at his age there. Sure. And nor am I going to come at a former client's age of yours, who I also like, Manny Gambirian. Of course, Manny was a WEC vet, an experienced fighter who decided later in his career he wanted to go try 135. Granted, Manny was more maybe of a power athlete, is e easy to argue, than Dominic Cruz. Apples to oranges. But I'm going to ask you, uh, Mr. Dulce, to speculate once again. Um, is there any kind of things that, you know, uh, Dominic Cruz, and not that you're telling him what to do or telling us what to think, but anything maybe we should be aware of in this kind of scenario from your experience? Well, I think the age factor for Dominic Cruz is a non-issue because, again, looking at our data, we see mixed martial arts typically hit their peak in their early through mid-30s. That's when a mixed martial artist really hits their stride and become, has their, their career-defining performances. This very well could be a career-defining performance for Dominic Cruz. That being said, the time out of the octagon, not from a ring rust perspective, the time out of the octagon from a weight reduction perspective, that's the one challenge I believe Dominic has to face because I don't know that Dominic has dropped down to 135 since his last weigh-in. Why would he? Now, 
I'm friends with Dom. Dom's a smart guy. Dom's a hardworking guy. There's no break in Dominic Cruz. Dominic will make the weight. It might be harder than he's anticipating, though he's a cerebral athlete. I believe he's already hedged the additional challenge into his weight cut. I would assume Dominic already knows it's going to come off a little slower. It's going to be a little harder. He's going to have to dig a little deeper in the process. If he's already built that expectation in, it shouldn't be an issue at all. But I would have to say it will be more challenging simply because it's the first time getting back under the wire. He's got to really you know, kind of sneak and slide under that wire because Dom's a big 35-pounder too. Don't forget, Dom's a tall guy for the weight class. He's got a lot of muscle mass on his physique, on his frame, and he hasn't reduced his body weight in in, in a pretty long period of time. Outside of that, Dom had said there's no such thing as ring rust, right? You get in there, you fight, you do the thing. Um, And I I do believe that. And Ryan Schultz, Ryan the Lion Schultz of the Team Quest days, he's a great, great uh, story here. You know, we, we were spending so much time in training camps and peaking for a fight and guys turning down fights because it wasn't enough time. And I was in the bathroom just kind of after training session getting, you know, cleaned up. And Schultz, he looks at me and goes, hey, Dolce, if someone broke into your house, would you say, hey, time out? I haven't had a training camp for this. Or would you go and beat those motherfuckers for five minutes, 15 minutes, 25 minutes, whatever you had to do? Would you even think about gassing out? I was like, no fucking way. And he's like, this training camp shit's bullshit. Just go fucking fight. And that mentality right there is true. And this kind of goes back to the Dom Cruz ring rust. Now, you're fighting professional mixed martial arts. You want to make sure your timing's good, skill sets. So that's, you know, yeah, we want to make sure we're pretty sharp. We know our transitions. We know our routes. We have our game plan. You know, we can get Greg Jackson to talk or Eric Del uh, Fierro, you know, who's uh, likely with Dom and whatnot. But at the same time, it's a fucking fist fight, pardon my language, against someone who is trying to steal your soul, trying to take money from your family. And I'm only saying that because I've, I've sat with Dom at dinner. I've sat in the car. I've sat on planes with Dom. He's a crazy motherfucker. Dominic Cruz, he's ready to go out there and steal your fucking soul. I don't think that'll be an issue. The one issue I have um, that I'm, I'm not worried about Dom that I note is it's his first time touching 35 again in a while. I think once he gets this one under his belt, he goes out there, he beats Cejudo, he comes back, he fights, and, you know, four, five, six months or so, fingers crossed, get him active. Each time he makes it, it'll be so much easier. Yeah, and again, maybe this is just, you know, uh, more conjecture on my part, but kind of to the Tony Ferguson and cardio nod, you spoke that some fighters can fall into the trap of spending their whole camp to make a weight. I got to imagine it's easier to do double delegation, killing two birds with one stone, if you will, if your fighter's fight style is already cardio-based. I'm sure that doesn't hurt the uh, weight maintenance process, right, Mike? That's a great point. And someone like Dom, he's on his feet constantly. He's always moving. He's always dancing. He's always putting in that cardio style training. Dom is, is one of the guys I would say might train too much. He, he might train too much. But how can you argue with an, uh, an athlete? Dom, he's a Hall of Famer. He hasn't been nearly as active as we wish he had. He could have been. But he's still a Hall of Famer. Right. Don, win or lose this fight. Dominic Cruz will eventually be in, in the UFC WEC Hall of Fame for the totality of his career accomplishments. But I really do hope um, that we see a very healthy Dominic Cruz get out there. He's fighting Henry Cejudo, which this is an exciting fight. It's an exciting matchup. I'm not going to do a, you know, a, a, you know, a, a, a commentary quite on this. I'm pumped up for this fight, but I really would like to see Dom come out. I'd like to see a stellar performance from Dom and I love to see him active. I'd love to see him get two fights in. 
in within the net before the end of the year. I'd love to see him get a late summer fight, an early winter fight, and I'd really love to see Dominic Cruz get a good, you know, four, five, six fights in before likely 38 years old. And, and I would assume he's going to walk away, hopefully with a big pile of money under his bed. I agree. I would love to see a healthy performance from Cruz, Tony, and I think health in general is going to be an underlining theme of the card. We want everybody to be healthy and have healthy performances. Mike, this was awesome. Thank you for your time and your knowledge and just sharing your experiences with us today uh, on on the subject. Yep. Dan, always always a pleasure. You know, always happy to be here. Love MMA Junkie and, and what you guys do. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm before anything else, I'm a fan of MMA. I'm just blessed that I have the opportunity to work inside the industry. So it, it's always a pleasure to be on and talking to you. Awesome. Thank you. And for those that are listening to this via my podcast, make sure again, you go to the Dulce diet.com. Follow Mike Dulce at the Dulce diet for all the official news and announcements. And if you want to buy his literature, which believe me as an, as an amateur uh, competitor at the cut weight for both combat sports and grappling, um, this was useful for me and my buddies, whether we're talking about living lean. I know you've had things that come, have come out since then, like the Dulce diet, college diet, uh, guide, of course, the classic three weeks to shred it. I mean, we were talking a lot about three week uh, windows here today, folks. Kind of get that full knowledge and a lot of places you can buy these, of course, uh, official retailers. But if you want to do it through Amazon, don't be shy to go through the host of my podcast, ProtectYourNeckPodcast.com. That's MixedMarshallAnalyst.com. He got an Amazon banner you can click through. It doesn't cost you any extra. Allows me to wet my beak a little. Everybody wins. Hey, and uh, hey. but honestly, follow follow Mike Dulce. He is the truth. I appreciate that, brother. Hey, thanks, Mike. You have a have a great time. Thank you again for your time today. You too, Dan. Thank you. Easy. Big thanks again to Mike for his time. Without further ado, let's get into the breakdown, shall we? No, a bit of a different format. And sorry if I was rambling a bit in the beginning. I am like um, on on no sleep this week again. Been a, been a bit of a crazy week here. God damn. Flies keep coming in. I <laughs> uh, got the odds pulled up. UFC 249. We are going to go from top to bottom here. Um, Tony Ferguson is your favorite. Minus 185. Justin Gaethje plus 160. Line really hasn't shifted too much. Um, although it does feel like more people are, are shifting toward the Justin Gaethje uh, picks. At least that's what you kind of get the feel, right? And I don't blame anybody. I mean, I said it the first time this matchup came around. I was like, man, Justin Gaethje and Poirier in my mind are, are, are you know, some of the low-key toughest matchups for Ferguson, in my opinion. Um, But when I started looking closer at it, again, the thing everyone's going to point to, whether it's a talking point or, you know, it's a gif, I'm, you know, the gifage, if you will, you're seeing shared. Uh, on the Twitter sphere is that Tony Ferguson gets hit, gets hit early, more specifically. Um, and uh, he's gotten hit by people who uh, maybe aren't, uh, you know, at least in some people's minds, maybe with the fists, like Pettis, even though people respect his kicks, and we'll talk about him uh, later in this card. Or, you know, others were able to uh, hurt, you know, Ferguson. Um, but... There's something to keep in mind. It's this is something like when when you know I was watching um who was it oh, somebody they got rocked by a jab and I was like oh he got oh it was Stevens and like like oh Stevens he got dropped by a jab and like Stevens didn't get dropped by a jab he he was throwing a kick now 
does that mean that the jab or whatever strike when someone was kicking doesn't hurt the person? No, it could, could very well hurt the person. Does that mean the person who threw the strike shouldn't get the credit? Of course they should get the credit. They hit the person. I'm just saying we should be careful with saying rocked. And the reason why I, I uh, cite that specifically to when someone throws a kick is because when you're throwing a kick, you are off balance. When you're throwing a kick, you are on one foot. Your balance is very easily compromised. It does not take much to tip you over. Uh, Tony Ferguson, most times, especially the times that people point to, especially the times that people will will gif, which is funny, it's that you'll notice he is getting hit while he's kicking. And when Kevin Lee did it, it wasn't, you know, it was probably the, the lightest of them all, but I'll hear him grouped in there. But if you want to credit Kevin Lee, you should be crediting the mountain ground and pound that he did toward the end of round one. That was really impressive. Um, and arguably Lee's best work in that fight. Um, or it's Anthony Pettis' shot, which again, Anthony Pettis has always had underrated uh, counter right hands. Um, it's a shot that's always been there for him. And um, if you look at how Anthony Pettis pairs it off his kick and kind of counterbalances off of it, I've broken it down in the past, um, and you see him hit Ferguson with it. You see him almost hit him with it like once or twice, and he hits it with him the third time. Um, and then he would go and knock out Stephen Wonderboy Thompson with a variation of it as well. So, again, it was nothing to really scoff at as far as Tony getting hit with it. But it was while he was kicking. So, in fact, I went and looked all the times Tony Ferguson was quote-unquote hit really hard and Really, it it, it 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 comes while he was uh, kicking, uh, and you know, and there are slips involved. Now, how much do you want to believe him as far as Lando Venata fight that the logo, you know, caused him to slip or whatever? You know, I'm not even going to go into that. And Lando cracked him plenty of good times in the follow up and chased him, which can be very dangerous and hard to do. And we'll get into that. And I, and if I don't, please go check out my breakdown and MMA junkie for these top two fights because any of the details that my tired ass misses, um, I will cover in those breakdowns. Um, I feel like I did a a, a, a pretty uh, decent job, and I, I um, on these ones because I got to break down two of uh, two of my favorite fighters. I mean, I, I love breaking down all these guys, but two of my favorite fighters who I really like breaking down, which is Dominic Cruz and Tony Ferguson. So biases are stated there for whatever that's worth, but. Yes, back to Tony Ferguson getting hit and this whole equation that we're building. And again, this does this mean that, that Justin Gaethje can't... Uh, am I discounting Justin Gaethje to knock out? Of course not. Like, if Justin Gaethje knocks out Tony Ferguson, I'm, I'm not going to be surprised. Neither should you folks. Um, the value is on Gaethje, so if you picked him and played him, good on you. I'm not trying to uh, dissuade you or make you feel bad about your pick. But this is just something that, I again, that I'm noticing as far as the main uh, tethering tethering point uh, for, for a Gaethje pick, which is Tony Ferguson gets hit early. And again, even when Venata, who hit him very well, what was it sparked off by? It was sparked off by Tony Ferguson throwing a kick and getting countered. Now, when you put as much output as Tony Ferguson is, if you're a high-volume fighter, you better be durable because you're going to get hit more, even if you have good defense. It's just it's just nature. There's no such thing as a biological free lunch, folks, Much in life, much less fighting. So if you are a high-volume fighter, a pressure fighter, you are going to have things come back your way. Um, if you do certain things like you shift a lot, you are going to open yourself up more to being countered when you shift. As, as much as creative 
much options as shifting opens offensively and it's all this great stuff. Yes, it's fun. Well, there's a price for it too, folks, and, and you get hit. So if you're a high-volume guy who shifts and throws kicks like Tony Ferguson, yeah, you're going to get hit a lot. But um, Tony Ferguson has shown the chin recoverability. If anything that's worrisome is that he cuts fairly easily and cuts a lot. But as far as his chin and recoverability goes, um, he's passed all those tests. He has different uh, offense and different layers. He'll go and wrap up legs and debase you and really make you chase him into the fire. Uh, and he can actually operate off of his back, right? Um, so, again, is that does that mean it's a good thing that he's, he's, he's so offensively volatile that he can be countered? Like, no, it's kind of nail-biting, right? But it's also why it makes him so entertaining. Does that mean Justin Cagey can't counter him? No, of course not. But when I went to go and looked at Gaethje, guess what I looked at? That's right. I looked at, does he counter people when they throw kicks? And I watched, I, I believe I watched the, I watched all his fights through a bunch of times. Um, I did not for this time around because it's maybe because it's just been booked for the second time around. Uh, but I just watched the, the Palominos, Firmino, uh, WSOF fights, and then his UFC career. And, um, Particularly in the UFC onward and toward the end of the WSOF especially, you're not really seeing him counter off of kicks. Um, can he? Sure. Does he attempt to every now and then? Yeah. I mean, it's, it's in his lexicon. Um, he seems to have a better distance management as time goes on. We see it particularly in his last couple of performances, right? Edson Barbosa, where he goes leg kick for leg kick with the other lightweight leg ki kick king. Uh, and then, of course... Um, with Donald Cerrone, who has the most leg kicks landed in UFC history. Quietly holds that title, right? Another leg kick king in his own right. Um, and Justin Gaethje did very good in those. But what does he mainly do? Well, one, he incorporated a little more feints and footworks when you hear about Justin Gaethje's upgrades or perhaps signs of him smiting, fighting smarter. That's what will be pointed to, right? Um, and within those feints and footworks, it's more kind of distance management, you know, being out of the way, the kick sliding back and picking his places um and most of his counters are crashes which again crashing counters are just fine when you have a shifting maniac coming toward you that could be more than suffice for gaethje folks but as far as specifically looking at getting uh countering someone when they're kicking that's when tony ferguson has been hit at least the times that everybody keeps pointing to for their for their gaethje pick the thing is gaethje doesn't do that does that mean he can't of course not of course of course he can um, does that mean he can't do it on the night when he fights Ferguson? Of course he can, folks. I'm just saying it's a really interesting note that everybody keeps pointing to that. But if you look at specifically, Tony's being countered when he's kicking and Justin is not throwing when people are kicking. Justin is throwing when people's backs to the fence. Justin is throwing when people are out of, he can get people out of position. Justin is throwing when people are touching him he's got his high guard shell and he can really feel where they're at because he really is blind and we'll use that as a feeler and he's justin really has a great sense of his own range and will know when to fire back in those senses he'll counter sure but kicking is really hard um to counter in the style that justin counters so maybe that's why we don't see him counter off people uh kicking now again does that mean he can't you know i keep repeating this but it's just it's worth repeating you know but i'm not going to be surprised if, if gaethje knocks out ferguson folks i'm just saying in the instances that everybody keeps pointing to 
that's not really when Gaethje pounces. Um, if you're really, you know, splitting hairs. Uh, so, so yeah, I, 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 it's still hard for me to not like uh, Tony Ferguson's jab. And in recent interviews, he's hinting toward body work. And when I went back to read my original breakdown, I'm glad I still highlighted that because even though um, I, I talk in my breakdown about Justin's body work and I feel like he's going to need that to open up the knockout, not that Ferguson is weak to the body or legs, but Justin tends to do his best work, uh, best knockout punches when he's really got those body and leg threats. Unless all of the Vic fight, he can just really can get a guy um, to the fence early out and, and, and out of his favorite positions often, right? Um, so what I was pointing to Justin's body work, but then I also mentioned, like, don't forget, like, Tony has consistent body work with those kicks that he throws, I just mentioned, and even punches, and he was uh, hinting toward that. So, yeah, I really think we're going to see a strike um, savvy performance from Ferguson, a la, like, the RDA fight. You know, RDA was one of the other times where he faced a somewhat dedicated pressure fighter. I mean, we've seen RDA for, forced to fight different fights. And in fact, in that fight, RDA, we see a little bit more of his stick-and-move curriculum come out that we've seen in past fights from uh, the Dunham or fights, you know, after that, I believe, with Safadine. Maybe he fought a bit. Well, I actually fought Safadine a lot in the clinch. Um, but, you know, RDA doesn't always have to pressure, albeit that's when he does his best work. And you could argue that maybe he didn't pressure in that fight because of Ferguson's jab and willingness to, uh, you know, be composed um, when he wants to. People forget about that performance. People, uh, we tend to just write Tony Ferguson off for the, uh, you know, like a wood chipper wearing Muay Thai shirts because we just have these. And I don't blame you guys because it's hard, right? We have these imprints in our head of Tony Ferguson slicing and dicing people along the fence line there. Um. But yeah, the guy the guy can jab his ass off too. He's got a lot of different uh, variations of his jab. He can come low from a low guard, low angle, um, and he, he he can use it to quietly half step his way into kill shots. I mean, the guy has heavy hands. We forget about that. But when Tony Ferguson first came down to lightweight and came onto the scene off tough, I mean, his heavy hands were just palpable. And I don't think those go anywhere, folks. So we're talking about F Ferguson getting older. Well, power's still the last thing to go in that sense. Um, I, I guess he could, you know, uh, su su submit Gaethje uh, as the fight gets on. Gaethje starts to tire and, and, and it becomes a war of attrition like I'm predicting it to be. But Gaethje is such a strong posture and one of the only guys who exercise a Granby role like Ferguson, which is part and parcel why I believe Gaethje and Ferguson are Khabib's toughest matchups in the division because they both can Granby role. And you look, just go look at the Abel Trujillo fight, folks. I know it's a highlight for Khabib as well as it should be. But Abel highlights some things that people that know how to Granby roll and are familiar with wrestling can uh, can perhaps do to Khabib um, to combat certain things. Um, but anyways, uh, neither here nor there, right? Sadly, um, so I, I see this being. I still see this being striking, and I'm still sticking with a, a third round stoppage uh, by strikes for Tony Ferguson. I wrote Tony Ferguson more combative than Jordan toward Krause. Yeah, like, I saw, like, someone on Twitter go, like, Jerry Krause go, I like the sun. And someone says, Jordan, fuck the sun. I'm going to take everything from the sun every day. I'm going to take his lunch money. <laughs> Sorry, folks, I'm not going to try to go into too many Lance Last Dance. Uh, you know, you know, Dan Tom can go off on some Chicago Bulls 90 talks. But, but yeah, I mean, Tony Ferguson has that combative personality. I mean, you hear, you know, like, 
I was like, oh, great. You know, uh, I saw a headline come out, you know, from our own, uh, from our own outlet, but it was like Tony, it took, it was Tony Ferguson from the media day. Right. He was just like, fuck people talking about my weight cuts, da, 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 da. people they don't know. Da, da, da. And just going, you know, painting with that whole broad brush that, you know, Dan Tom loves being that Dan Tom doesn't live with his mother. He actually takes care of his mother. And Dan Tom has actually fought in cages and competed, you know, his whole fucking life and suffered the health and still lives with health consequences because of it. So, yeah, you know, I love hearing that broad brush painted. But um, nevertheless, I don't take that stuff personally. Hence why, uh, despite his <laughs> personality and combative attitude, Tony Ferguson is, I stand by, one of my favorite fighters to break down. Um but it's just funny, you know, you just look at like the kind of the contradictions where he was like, you just, you can't even read a sentence where he'll, he'll just be like, uh, win or lose, I'm coming to win. Like that was one of his quotes this week. And then, you know, and then he's like, I said, he's painting with a broad brush that people don't know. And then part of him like chimes in and acknowledges, well, you know, fighters are talking about me too, about the weight cut. And, you know, they've cut weight before, but screw them. Like, it's just, it, it doesn't matter. Like, you could be like, Tony, you're, you're awesome, and he's going to get upset. I mean, that's what happened in my interview with him uh, after the Kevin Lee fight. Like, I just did, like, the typical softball where I'm, like, praising his technique and setting him up for him to enlighten us and tell us about it and talk about his style. And, you know, it didn't matter. It just – he heard a completely different question. Like, I think he heard, like, I'm going to piss down your gas tank and F your mother. Like, <laughs> the way he responded. Like, I don't know what he heard me say to him, but that that is Tony Ferguson. So it's like, you just, oh, in those cases, I am so glad I am not, like, you know, like, I'll do the, the scrums for Contender Series when I'll cover those live, or, like, um, you know, Bellator Hawaii when I'm out there. But, you know, folks, it's not my normal beat to be at these shows. And uh, as much as I like covering Tony Ferguson from Alan's perspective, boy, would I hate being in those scrums, because it's like, why do I got to pitch pitch these questions to this guy wearing baseball gloves that just can't wait to swat them out of my hand and make me look like an idiot for asking <laughs> asking them. Um, but yeah, man, that is, that is, that is El Kikui. Um, I, I, I'm just, I'm just here for the show. I'm going to stay away from this one, folks. No, uh, no, no bets on this fight. I just want to enjoy it. Good luck if you're playing the dog and got Justin Gaethje. That's where the value's on. Next fight, uh, Henry Cejudo defending his title. Minus 220. As a favorite, Dominic Cruz, come back. Uh, plus 180. Yeah, um, like I said, the early lean was Cejudo because he should be the deserved favorite. And if you go read my breakdown, I make no qualms about it. Cejudo is the deserved favorite. Um, you know, as you know, him winning should be uh, the most likely outcome. However,. Uh, it's always weird, folks, you know, and maybe you don't feel that way about this fight, and that's fine if you disagree here, but just kind of dig with me a second on this on this theme because I do think this is a theme we all can we've all been at one point or another. Something to worry about, right? Always worry about those fight folks, not just when it's like an overwhelming favorite when it shouldn't be like, what's oh, a heavyweight fight? Anything can happen. Why is this over three to one or stuff like like yeah, that's a given, right? Or just super inflated lines, no matter to the division. It's MMA. That's a given. I mean, those are obvious flags, obvious, you know, hey, take a second thought there. What I'm talking about is regardless of the odds. Like, it can even be minus 220 to plus 180. And again, folks, biased, admitted, full disclosure, biased toward Dominic Cruz, picking him here. But even picking him aside, I feel like this line should be wider. So let's just, let's, but regardless, let's just take this line minus 220 plus 180. That's not a far spread line, right? 
Um, these are two guys with, you know, well, maybe it's sketchy sample size because it's crew, so bad example there. But, you know, that's not a far, wide line. Why should this be so worrisome? Well, the theme that I want to hone in on here is that whether or not you think this fight fits the bill is that fights where one guy should win, regardless if even if it's not like a minus 700, it could be a minus 220, but I think a lot of us can agree, like, Cejudo should win this on paper, right? But at the same time, even if you're somebody who's picking Cejudo and you don't like Cruz, so you're on the opposite boat of me on many stances, which is totally cool, um, I think even you can agree where it's like, okay, how is Cejudo going to win? I think we can all be confident on paper that he should win, but now when I put the gun to the, the proverbial gun to your head, you have to pick a method and be confident about it. Again, folks, you know, I always warn people about false confidence, and I'm not hating on that style. It's just not my style here. I'm clearly too self-deprecating for my own good, obviously, but I'm, I'm clearly a lot more of a humble approach, probably because of my life experiences in life. Um, but uh, but so there's nothing. But there's nothing. N- n- nothing wrong. Um, with being confident per se, but in the in in the state of COVID nineteen, you know, and all this stuff, like kind of something I always say, like I have more respect for the guy who admits he doesn't know than the guy who's confident, in, in, you know, in the current climate of things. Um. So again, you know, be be confident at your own risk, but the guns on on the table. How does he win? Oh, does he does he submit him? I doubt that. Cejudo doesn't have a submission victory. Cruz. Cruz has been in there with Faber and Benavidez with how many rounds. And, yeah, Faber got him the first time, but we saw how many rounds and how many of his compadres got a hold of Cruz and couldn't do anything since then, right? Okay, no. Knockout, you know what? I, I, I'm I scared to not just underestimate Henry Cejudo, as I'm already picking against him, folks, but I'm scared to underestimate his power as we've just seen it, you know. Say what you will about the TJ Dillashaw shouldn't have been down there. I do think that it had to do with his durability, sure, but he can't still can't take away from Cejudo, right? And then he does that to Marlon Marais, who say what you will about Marlon's fight IQ or whatnot, uh in that fight, gassing out, gas tanks. Marlon's taken some shots and being able to recover before and uh, you know, granted Henry hit him with some really big knees. I think the knees more than the right hands is what sparked him kind of concussed him uh late in the second. Nevertheless, that's Cejudo. That's Cejudo striking. That's Cejudo striking with power. You can't take that away from him, folks. But Dominic Cruz has never been knocked out. And even in the fight, which I'll get to, Cody Garbrandt, again, you're only good as your last fight. And not only is it the long layoff, but every, you know it, it leaves a bad taste in your mouth because it was, you know, Cruz got, Cruz got styled on. It was like, it was almost like, at least in our minds, initial impression for sure. It's almost like a Barrow Dillashaw without the finish, right? It's just like one of those performances, and it was a great performance, so I'm not trying to take that away from Cody Garbrandt, but Cody Garbrandt goes and just goes right hands bam crazy and kind of just shoots his own whole career working in the foot, and again, that rubs off on Cruz, right? That makes Cruz kind of look extra bad. Cody Garbrandt hasn't won since that night. By the way, folks, pop quiz, UFC 207, the last time Cody Garbrandt won a fight, the last time Cruz fought, was the first night of this year podcast. Please don't go listen to that show. That was the after-party editions when we were uh, drinking on those. And don't get me wrong, you may see me crack a beer on these live recaps, but yeah, we're not going to be getting out of hand. Just saying, kind of fun fact there. So that was the first episode of the Protecting Nick podcast. Look at us here now on episode 189. 
and uh, strolling on, strolling on, uh, on through there. But yeah, um, uh, but but yeah, uh, you know, is, is, is he, he going to knock him out? Because Cody Garbrandt, you know, again, the, uh, what, what, he hit him with such clean shots. I mean, there were like you know Dan Hardy, Carlos Condit moments where they were both hooking at the same time, and of course Cruz hooks wide, so he was paying for it, right? It was Cody Garbrandt shorter, more tighter hooks. Um, hitting Cruz and power side like they were um, southpaw uh, lead right hand hooks and Cody Garbrandt of course is a right handed orthodox fighter so those had oomph behind him and Cruz just what does Cruz do he gets right back gets right back on the fucking clock and gets back to work like nothing that's mental mental strength along with some genetics and chin he's got that Mexican chin man his last name's Cruz folks he's got enough you know whatever Mexican blood's in him it went to that chin let me tell you boy um, and, uh, and, uh, and yeah, so like, so Suhudo going to knock him out. Well, okay. Well then Suhudo's probably going to get the decision. Now the decision, I'll agree with you. That's probably, I think the most likely outcome. If you put a, if you put a gun to the, you know, my head unbiasedly, maybe I might say 49, 46 or a 48, 47 Suhudo scorecard. But how many times has Suhudo even been five rounds? He's only touched the championship rounds once. He's only been five rounds once. He's only been scheduled for it a few times, whereas Cruz has fought over a decade uh, scheduled for five rounds, minus one fight against Takeya Mitsugaki, which he iced him in under a minute. Um, and when he gets to those rounds, we see the adjustments, the pace, injured, off of layoff, off of injury, off of injury, plus sustaining injuries in fights, winning fights, or, like in the Cody Garbrandt, losing the fight, Cruz is still there and putting up numbers. And in fact, in that Cody Garbrandt fight, despite rightfully losing, Cruz actually visibly stuns Garbrandt at least once, claims twice. I, I don't want to get too speculative, but definitely hurts him and rocks him once, which now with hindsight is really easy, much easier to swallow, right? Because we look at Cody Garbrandt's chin. Uh, however, not only that, Cruz actually went on to statistically outscore uh, Cody Garbrandt and outstrike him throughout um, pretty much the entirety of the fight. Now, that doesn't mean you should win the fight because statistics don't mean anything. Garbrandt landed the harder, more meaningful shots, deserved to win. Not what I'm saying, folks. Just, just the point. Like, what you got to do to Cruz. Like, you got to fucking bring a gun in there. You know what I'm saying? Like, Cody Garbrandt was probably wishing his tattoos could morph into reality because that's what he needed to stop Dom. And say what you will about Garbrandt's chin, but Uriah, who can take a shot, and, you know, yeah, he was stopped by Peter fucking Jan, which he should have been at his age, right? Jesus Christ, getting in there with Jan. God bless you, Uriah. Um, but let's not forget, like, he got rocked multiple times and dropped by Dominic Cruz in their third fight. Uh, Cruz even dropped him from Southpaw with his left hand because Cruz... Often, kind of like Dillashaw, this is, everyone talked about the footwork, we were talking about all that Neo footwork, I never got it, of course, if you read my breakdowns, it was much more about, you know, defense and offense, and, and, and I break down their styles differently, because they are different, however, one of the common threads they, they did have, albeit they did it in completely different styles, was that both TJ and Dom like to conduct traffic off of their right hand, and punctuate off of their left. Um, which is why TJ's right eye is almost, you know, swelled shut from Dom's left hand. Uh, Uriah gets stunned and dropped uh, multiple times in their fight by Cruz's left hand. And Cruz, um, you know, tags uh, Cody with both. I can't remember which hand he rocked him with. 
according to Cruz, both, but one of them he for sure did. So again, um, I think Cruz is quietly uh, getting more powerful um, as his career goes on. I know everyone's going to laugh when you say that. Now, I didn't say Cruz is a knockout puncher, folks. I'm saying quietly getting more powerful, and I just cited examples, both physical, dropping, rocking, etc., wins and losses, uh, that would factually support that. And when I was going back to watch a lot of the... So, just to tie up that long, elongated point, always be careful on these fights where... Because we've had them before, right? Where we look back and go, that guy shouldn't have lost. But then when we look back and we say, yeah, you know what? It, it wasn't as sure of a shot as perhaps we thought in hindsight. And I'm not saying it will be that way, but this feels like it has that similar setup where it feels like we have a guy that should win. He's younger, stronger, more athletic, more active... Uh, more powerful, um, more fast, speedier speed kills, like all these things, check boxes, Hudo checks off. He should win this fight, folks. I'm not disagreeing, but it, it it's always funny when you get that weird dichotomy where it's like he should win the fight, but I'm having a hard time picturing in an exact method. He's going he's gonna to out-decision the goddamn decisionator. Uh, you know what I'm saying? And what's he going to do it with? He's not the same type of counterpuncher Cody Garbrandt is back to the Garbrandt fight in comparison. Everyone you know, we, we everyone has that fight burned into their heads with Dominic Cruz. Um, now, Cejudo, if he's smart, will sit back and counter. He just does it in a different way than Garbrandt. Um, I suspect he may try to do it in the more karate stance way like he did in the Wilson-Hayes fight as opposed to coming forward. Uh, if he does come forward, though, it will be the score takedowns. I just, I'm not sure how much he's going to be able to score those. Being that Cejudo is really reliant on the clinch. Now, I feel like I undersold him in the wrestling, by the way. Shouts to Ed Gallo and everybody who listened and shared. That got a lot of shares and love. I, um, don't know why, but I appreciate it. So shouts to everybody who, who, who did that, Ed, and everyone else, and everyone over there at the fight site. Um... Check them out, by the way, thefightsite.com. Um, by just limiting Henry Cejudo to an inside trip. Like, he chains really well. The thing is, though, it really comes down to the clinch. Like, he can score in the open and shoot in the open, but when he does, he's really depending on his speed and athleticism, folks. Because I haven't seen him in the UFC uh, really meaningfully do like a 1-1-2 one, one, and shoot. Like, he really shoots naked. He'll kind of like pump fake, like he'll do. He'll do kind of a feint on the feet, like like he's gonna pump fake like a basketball, like you know, like almost like you're gonna like, uh, you know, people do that dickhead move on the court where they would act like they were gonna pump, like chest pass it right to your face and like to get you to put your hands up. Like he almost looks like he's gonna do that as he dives in for for your legs and then comes up and works his way up to the clinch and then gets his chain from there. Like that's a hard thing to do against an active mover who's difficult to pin down. And again, love or hate Dom Cruz, you can't deny that he is an active mover who is difficult to pin down. Again, back to the uh, top five wrestlers from standing or neutral position, like get a get a stopwatch and go time how many people have been able to control Cruz against the fence, even like early Cruz and, you know, um, strong wrestlers at the time like uh, Ian McCall. Uh, pushing him against the fence, like that being his main plan. Like McCall could barely get keep him pinned there for more than six seconds, folks. I know McCall's a flyweight. I'm I'm referencing that fight within the context of when it took place, folks. Um, both Cruz and McCall, in fact, used to compete like all the way up at lightweight. Cruz actually has regional titles at featherweight and lightweight. 
But but yeah, I don't see him being able to wrestle. Now, the wrestling defense part of the equation, which was a quiet key in Cody Garbrandt's, again, counterpunching performance, was that he was able to shut down the takedowns of Cruz, which is huge. Because again, love or hate Cruz, he's a good takedown artist, folks, which is what I, what I went down uh, in that episode that I keep referencing with Ed. Um, so that was really impressive on Garbrandt's part. And uh, surely Cejudo has that. I mean, defensive wrestling is the one part that he really does use his wrestling, right, folks? So it's going to be very, very difficult for Cruz to get Cejudo out of position because that's what he'll have to do to get a guy like Cejudo down. Um, Where I think Cruz will have his best opportunities as I lay out in the breakdown to get Cejudo down is the re-wrestling. Kind of, you know, like I often reference, re-wrestling is a big key. Whether it's you fail a shot and going for another, chaining or uh, and that obvious approach, or re-wrestling in the sense of someone shoots for you and you counter-wrestle, you reshoot on them back. Um, they've kind of closed the distance for you. And kind of like a, in boxing or MMA, we talk about overthrowing a punch and throwing yourself out of position. You can do that in the same with wrestling, which is the risk of taking a shot. You know, Especially if a good defensive wrestler can really make his money off the front headlock, you could be getting yourself into some shit if you don't complete what you initially shoot for. Um, and that's where I think Cruz can maybe surprise Cejudo because, again, Cruz is very not just savvy, but he's also very big and strong, folks, and that does count for something. I know Cejudo looks in insane shape, and I'm not going to speculate there. Let's just say those NeuroForce 1 dudes got me and many other people's attention. We'll just leave it at that. Um, but, and, and, and Cejudo is an undeniable athlete, folks. I'm not trying to take anything away. Believe me, the dude's fucking years of wrestling, okay? Um, however, size does account for things. And not just that, but you look at the stout frame, size, strength, and how they match up. And look at Dominic Cruz's takedown style with that knee tap style. I mean, that's kind of an overpowering style. You look at certain... You know, I, I can't pull him offhand for you uh, now, but there, you know, the, the certain instances where people did try to take Cejudo down, which are very few, because who's going to try to take Cejudo down? It's one of those things where it's like, wait, how good is this guy's takedown defense? Because no one really tries to take them down. Um, and I, I'm hesitant to back up that point by pointing to Yoel Romero, because Yoel Romero also just does crazy shit and just kind of really has a laissez faire attitude um, to thinking you have anything for him when you when you try or succeed in taking him down uh and i don't think Cejudo is that lazy at all um when it comes to that at least um i i, I think he's gonna be much harder to take down uh in a pound for pound comparison wise to like a yo romero as far as how they apply their styles in mma um but uh what was they saying there oh but um but like you look at um, when the people have tried to take Cejudo down, even if it's half, you know, like half-assly, and they don't really think they're gonna do it. They're just kind of doing it as kind of a release valve, so they just can stop the onslaught or whatever else is going on, kind of a sort of thing. Um, you look at it, and it's like, well, if that was Cruz in there, and he gets him to balance on one foot, and then you know, uh, clubs him across to finish the uh, knee tap. Uh, you know, more of a brutish way or crude way. Like I could totally see him at the very least scoring with Cejudo that way. Um, and then you keep in mind that Cejudo is coming off of a shoulder surgery, folks, left shoulder. Now, again, seems to be ripped and in ridiculous shape. So, for it, you know, I wouldn't look too deeply as far as him, you know, being worried about the shoulder. However, 
working out and conditioning, which everybody's doing a whole lot more, and I imagine a lot less sparring in during these times. Although the top four guys probably did get their sparring in. I'm just saying, folks. Um, is much different than the actual fight. Anybody who suffered an injury knows whether you're, you know, especially, you know, you hurt a knee, you're a little reluctant to start sinking your hook, hook in, whether it's for a ride or you're a back taker. Either way, you're going to think twice about it. And hopefully you're going to get over it. But we all know, for those who have gone through it, there is a hump to get through, both in the practice stages and in the competition and live go stages. So that is something to watch for. Luckily for Cejudo, he doesn't use his left side too much for striking. He's mainly right-sided. If anything, he'll use his left kick every once in a while for a body kick or a left knee. But as far as his left shoulder for punching, um, he doesn't use it that much. And guys, people punch with bad shoulders all the time. You ever wonder why like a fighter throws really crisp and later in his career, he doesn't look as technical or his punches are a little wider? It's not because he's lazy or punchy, although those things can both definitely apply. But a lot of times it's because they're, they're I don't want to use the word gate, but that's like for walking. Um, but their the range of motion on the shoulders change, you know, and that's not even from punching a lot of times. A lot of times it's from Kimuras, it's from grappling because uh, the reaching is just what's going to hurt. I mean, we get older, and whether you're in decent shape or not, it's it's not uncommon to tweak your shoulder, folks. I'm currently going through a torn rotator cuff recovery, a prolonged one, but complicated one myself, albeit I didn't have to get surgery on it um, yet. <laughs> um, so uh, I, I can tell you, you can bullshit throwing punches, um, for one. Uh, even though I'm just kind of examining on why they can maybe not look good as when you get older as far as wear and tear. That being said, you can still throw it. You know, you hear people saying, oh, it's a shoulder injury. But you kind of look back, like, oh, they, they were still throwing punches. But, yeah, they weren't throwing them as meaningfully, as powerfully, and getting the same results with them. Uh, however, wrestling is much harder to do. It's much challenging, much more likely to re-injure, much more likely where you're going to be more hesitant. And not just wrestling, but the kind of wrestling, again, takedown styling here, that, that, that knee-tap takedown, that swimming and re-swimming, swimming arms, which means like kind of like, it's kind of like uh, pummeling, folks, pummeling and, and, and fighting for underhooks. Uh, that's what we use the term for swimming. You can swim for an underhook, not just from a clinch position, maybe from, you know, a turtle. Uh, and before someone swings around, you know, from a front headlock, they snap you down, they want to get around to your back, you want to swim your arm, right, and block the outside of their thigh and hip so they you know before they make it to to your side you know there's a lot of swimming and wrestling okay and Cruz's wrestling style makes you swim your arms a lot so in other words is regardless on what your theory is them shoulders are going to get tested in this fight regardless if Cruz gets any takedowns or not he will be the one pushing the action for what that's worth in the judge's eyes and he will be the one testing Henry Cejudo's shoulders for what that's worth does that mean he's going to win the fight on the cards or otherwise? No. But that's what's going to happen if we're, we're going by what both these fighters do, right? Um, now, again, Henry Cejudo has surprised with offense. Again, his sample size, for better or worse, has not been as filled out in the longer championship round. So I'm definitely leaving some rooms to be surprised. He has shown that he can put on an aggressive pace. However, he wasn't... Uh, you know, he, he was less tired, thankfully, but it's not like he wasn't feeling that, too, and having to dig deep, too, in that Marlon Marais fight in the third round. You know, and if you think that was a high pace, I mean, a fight with Cruz where you're not even hitting that much feels can feel just as high. So it's going to be really interesting to see if Cejudo 
can't get anything off emphatically early and often within those first two rounds, what his gas tank, much less what the overall fight, is going to start looking like when he's forced to fight Cruz's fight at Cruz's pace. Because people who move short, stout wrestlers as powerful or as good submissions as they might be, not to paint with a broad broad brush, but, but just from those perspectives, Dominic Cruz has always handled those fighters accordingly. Whereas Henry Cejudo, whether it was the fight with Joseph Benavidez, which I wasn't sure if Joseph won, and I feel like the more I watch it, Benavidez bias aside, um, the more I'm convinced that he won. Not that, like, I have to put my flag or F you if you thought Cejudo won. Like, it's not unreasonable to think Cejudo won that fight, by the way. I'm not, I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that Cejudo lost that fight. Fact. And Cejudo barely won the second fight after getting tooled in the clinch from DJ in the first fight. Um, he barely won the second fight against Demetrius Johnson, who had a foot injury there, which explains why Demetrius Johnson had a vacant offensive grappling game, which is completely unnatural for him. Um, just go look at their their first fight. Um, you know, he wasn't afraid to tie up and ended up beating Cejudo in the clinch. So it's not like he was afraid of being outclassed there, folks. Um DJ is super classy, so he's not gonna make too many excuses for that. But the dude was the dude wasn't healthy, and props to Hudo, man. He deserved to win that fight. I got no issues with the scorecards, uh, by the way. I'm not not taken away from his win there, but it was a close fight, and you know, Mighty Mouse uh, wasn't a uh, you know what what wasn't full for that. And Mighty Mouse again, like Benavidez, a, a stance switcher can counter, can move, can move laterally. And uh, those are the only two people. Those two aren't like Dominic Cruz. Dominic Cruz beat both those guys. But as far as any type of, um, you know, style parody, um, type of any kind of semblance of analog, uh, of looking uh, where things line up, like, yeah, those were probably Cejudo's more difficult fights. Um. So, in my mind, even if Cruz is slower, I feel like if he's healthy and rested and anywhere near 80%-ish, that kind of area, I feel like we could see a classic Cruz performance in what should still be a very close and competitive affair. Even if Cruz fights right, it's going to be hard either way. It's good. The odds are going to be against him either way, folks. Don't get it twisted with my bias and coloration here. Um, but, but I do think Cruz can win a decision, and I don't think it's that crazy. And... Even though I think the line should be wider, I guess people are with me on that because money has been coming in on Cruz um, since the initial. I don't see too much more coming in, but like again, I guess maybe I'm not that crazy. We'll see. But uh, I'm going to pick Cruz there. And again, last touch on that Garbrandt fight. Not trying to take away with an alternate history towards Cejudo. It's just, again, I'm, I'm trying to... You know me, folks. Contrarian Dan Tom, right? I want to... Give information away from the obvious narratives. And I'm going to push through the rest of the fights rather quickly. I'm, I'm spending, I knew I was going to spend a lot of time plus the open for um, this one. But, uh, but yeah. Um, whoa. Echo, echo, echo. Check, check, check. Huh. All right. Um, but, yeah. Um, but, yeah. You go back to that Dominic Cruz and Cody Garbrandt fight. Like, you forget Cruz fought three times in that calendar year, which champions don't really do these days. And he was injured 
coming into the first fight of that calendar year where he won the title back from TJ Dillashaw, coming off of an injury and layoff yet again, winning yet again. Then he goes and fights Faber. Um, All right, Uh, maybe, you know, you can't sleep on Faber, but sure, yeah, he should have won that fight and handled it accordingly. Um, And then he goes in and fights Cody Garbrandt. Now both of his feet are taped up at this point. You know, he's fought through the in, uh, the injuries they've been fighting through all year, trying to make up lost time. And, um, you know, how much of it was age? Because, yes, you know, I'm not denying folks, speed is the first thing to go at lighter weight classes with age and injury. And Cruz, unfortunately for him, he checks all those boxes. And in no way am I, am I trying to deny that um, or anything like that. Um, but how much of it was, yeah, the fact that he came in injured. And then you incorporate the fact that he suffers, the, the the big cut that he had was from a headbutt that he suffers within the first two rounds. As well as within the first two rounds, he breaks his right hand, which you can see in like post-fight, um, in post-fight uh, interviews. You see Cruz's like swollen hand. Um, you see him motion it to it, like I think between round two to uh, Eric Del Fierro. So again, folks, I mean, like, and then he, he still went on to out statistically outstrike him and stun Cody Garbrandt despite being rocked and having all that adversity against him cut and all that stuff, right? Um, and then, yeah, and, and, and then, again, Cejudo's Demetrius Johnson fight, not just DJ not being healthy, et cetera, et cetera, but, like, we're talking about Cruz coming off the longest layoff of his career. You know who else is coming off the longest layoff of his career? Henry Cejudo. This is the longest layoff of his pro career. Sure, it's only 11 months, but 11 months is close to a year, and a year is the red flag point, folks. We all know that. And 11 months may not be that long time, but 11 months was roughly the same layoff Demetrius Johnson was coming off of when he fought Henry Cejudo. Oh, oh, and by the way, Demetrius Johnson was also coming off of a shoulder surgery, just like Henry Cejudo is. This fight, including a similar amount of layoff. We got to see what Henry Cejudo does with that, folks. Um, he is an athletic elite. But in the course of a pandemic, and as you'll see with a lot of these picks, maybe not, maybe mainly with the top two, I should say, I'm siding with the more mentally elite than the athletically elite. And not that, you know, fucking Justin Gaethje is one of the toughest mental motherfuckers there is in this sport, much less this card. Don't take it the wrong way. Don't get it twisted. Henry Cejudo is strong mentally, too. The dude's an Olympian. The dude had to adjust under fire against Marlon freaking Marais. Uh, I mean, like, uh, the, the, he's overcome his own adversities in life, Cejudo. Um, stick aside, you know. Uh, the, the dude's apparently a really good dude in real life, uh, you know, from what I hear. So, like, props him. I'm not trying to take away from these guys. But at the same time, whether you like him or hate him, I think we all can agree Tony Ferguson and Dominic Cruz are different kind of fucking psychopaths in all the best and malevolent, <laughs> all the most, all the good and malevolent ways. I think we can all agree on that. So I'm picking that crazy motherfucker Cruz to go in, which by the way, again, he's been looking like he's been doing stuff since January, like I said at the top of the podcast. And the crazy part is he looks like he's been doing a lot of flying knees um, a lot more body and a lot more body work, uh, shots, which he usually doesn't do typically, which is one thing that is negative going against Cruz. 
because I think Cejudo is, is I don't want to say weak or soft to the body, but I think his big-ass head, it's hard to rock Cejudo, though he was rocked by Marlon Moraes and kind of got saved by the bell, folks. People forget about that. Um, but I think the body is the most susceptible part, and that is where Cruz goes toward the lease. Uh, thankfully, Cruz does go to the legs. We've seen Cejudo get hurt to the legs multiple times. L- kicking defense in general is not a strength of Cejudo. So I think Cruz is going to use that. Um, you know, we're hearing Jeremy Stevens to seeing actual pad work. If you go and look at like guys like Hans Mollenkamp, by the way, who has um, been in camp with both Tony Ferguson and Dominic Cruz. Speaking of common threads of... <laughs> Uh, uh, there you got Hans Mollenkamp, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, Muay Thai fighter, um, working with both those guys there. And uh, Dominic Cruz looks like he's throwing real power in kick, the kicks, like more power than I've ever seen him throwing him before. He's doing a lot of flying knees, even rebranded his new logo into a flying knee. And Dominic Cruz has thrown flying knees before, folks. Um, that's actually not that unusual. But it's kind of weird that he's throwing a lot of those and doing a lot of body shots. It's almost as if... He know he he was waiting in the wings for Henry Cejudo. You know, people say Dom was smart. You know, even after the previous book to, uh, matches that fell fell through with uh, Jimmy Rivera, etc. You could argue Dom could have uh, he was healthy against the beginning of the year. What was he waiting for? It was almost like he knew, right? Some people were speculating that. Well, when you go look at his social media, the shots that he's throwing is almost telling me like he knows. I say the flying knees and the uppercuts and uh, my, my, you know could be there because of the dipping propensities. We saw Matt Hume pick up on that, was telling DJ to do it more, but DJ with the busted foot couldn't really do the flying knees that Matt Hume was calling for. You know, uh, Dominic Cruz. You know he studies some tape. You know he saw that. Um, he's doing those coincidentally. Um, the grappling coach he's been working with really closely this year. Um, as well as within quarantine with, when it was like just uh, from small camp to, although he is getting his full training with guys like Miles Jury to Jeremy Stevens and Alliance. So Dominic Cruz is one of the people that was getting sparring in this camp, short in camp as it may be. But he was also working with, um, I forget his name, uh, Justin Flores, who is uh, was a Division One wrestler, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belt, but uh, was a judo U.S. Olympic team, I believe. Um so, yeah, judo black belt, jiu-jitsu black belt, and D1 wrestler. Not a bad guy to work with, but it's crazy. But you go back to January, and so much of their drills are all flows, scrambles, which is great because you can really see this kind of shape and health someone's in, in the way in which they scramble. And Dominic Cruz is scrambling really well. But more specifically, this guy, of course, because he's a judo and wrestling guy, he should be. Um, but he seems to really specialize coincidentally in inside trips and you can just see them doing inside trip and scrambling drills from the clench dating all the way back to this year. It's almost as if though technically a four week camp Cruz has been working specific techniques that seem like they would work really well on paper against Cejudo. Now, well, is that the case? I don't know. Will that show in the fight? I don't know. But I'm rambling for a reason, folks. Uh, these are very interesting points that I don't think you're really going to get um, people diving too deeply much more else. Does it mean Cruz is going to win the fight? No. Nope. The odds are against him, folks. You're smart. The smart money is on Cejudo here. I don't blame you for playing him heavy, but I play Cruz at plus 180 for half a unit. I'm only telling you that because I'm honest here on this podcast, <laughs> for better or worse. Um, I don't charge for picks. Not that I'm hating on people that do. Props and good on them on hustling. 
who knows with well, the way things may go i may have to go down that road sometime if uh, i get you know, if i lose my job or something so i'm not I'm not trying to hate but uh, i i give my picks for free and I, I tell you what i play for better or worse that being said i insist that you guys don't jump off with me on these cliffs especially on plays like this and keep in mind that i bet like a 9 year old with an allowance as far as amounts goes not out here slanging giant units folks i ain't fronting like i am either all right, next fight. Let's blow through the rest of this card pretty fast. Francis Ngannou minus... Because, again, short notice camp, folks. Um, I only watched tape on the main card, and I kind of just breezed through and just did interviews and social media studies and etc. Because not everybody had real camps, and my week was crazy, too. So, in theme of the fighters, um, my prep was a bit altered, too. But as per usual, again, folks, I'm always honest about the fights that I did my study and didn't. I always try to give you guys the best product, uh, product in most honest takes possible. Ninganu minus 280. Rosinho Rosenstrach plus 240. I know he's surname with a Dutch-based name, yet he gets more Jewish every time I talk about him because that's who Jarzinho is to me. He, he, he's my, he's, he is officially my Jewish brother, even though he's not a, he's not a Jew. It's okay. Rosenstrach, yes. Um, again, folks, you guys got to be careful. Anything over minus 250... Uh, spread in a heavyweight fight, you should be squinting your eyes at. Um, you know, and, and especially not just because these guys both have knockout power, proverbial heavyweight fights, but also both these guys quietly like to counter. Um, though you're not their typical counterfighters, uh, they're different counterfighters from each other and not typical counterfighters as you expect. And Ngano's imposing, but he really likes to uh, use his pressure, feint, and presence to open up opportunities to strike. Whereas Rosenstruck does as well, too. It's funny, Rosenstruck, man, I'm like, dude, this guy even move his head? Like, for a guy who likes to counter, I mean, granted, Nagano doesn't have the greatest, like, layered defense as well, nor do most heavyweights, so I'm not hating on either of these guys, believe me. Um, but, like, it's funny, for a guy that likes to counter-strike Rosenstruck, he really just does not move his fucking head. Like, he'll use some basic trunk movement, and he'll kind of pull out of range and just look to fire back. Like, that's kind of his main thing. And he fires back emphatically, folks. And he's got weapons to fire back, some speed, and a lot of things you can't sleep on. So believe me, he he imposes and he sticks to his guns for a reason, uh, as he proved. Uh, albeit he doesn't want to, you know, bank on that all the time in MMA, as he proved in Alistair Overeem with his last second knockout. That was still ridiculous. I still couldn't believe that shit when I went back to watch it. Um... So you always got to respect them, but man, it's it's hard to take him against against Ninganu. Um, Rosenstruck, he's you know he's not jacked like Ninganu. He's not like the tallest guy or whatnot, but he's still ridiculously athletic, fast, and powerful. Um, that being said, I'm gonna be really curious because it looked like Ninganu really was attaching his leg kicks as far as. Uh, okay, if if you're instead of uh, getting caught at distance in a staring contest at Derek Lewis, if a guy wants to counter me and I want to counter, um, it looks like almost Nagano's like, you know what? I'm gonna add leg kicks to my offensive and prodding game, so at least I'm scoring and I'm hurting the guy. I'm giving him something to think about and I'm giving myself something to work with. If my preferred countering opportunities aren't presenting itself, and I like that and that's smart. And sure, he got his legs taken out from when when um, JDS returned a leg kick. But lest we not forget, JDS was quietly working on those ever since he went to American Top Team. He he pieced up Stipe's legs before getting knocked out. If if we if if, if y'all remember, 
So I don't know if we can write Ningano too much for you know taking that leg kick from um, from JDS, but I will be curious because I have a feeling that Ningano is going to come out here and prod some some leg kicks against Rosenstrike, and I'm going to be curious if that works as a flint later and opens up a bunch of exchanges, or perhaps opens up Rosenstruck's leg kicks and let's say. Hypothetically, Rosenstruck um, can leg kick a lot better. And does that shut Ningano down? Like, oh, fuck. He's got this portion. Um, either way, I suspect we're going to have a feeling out portion through the first round. And if there is a finish, it's going to be either at the very end of the first round or at the very beginning of the second, if there is a finish. However, I suspect that there won't be. Um, I really like what... Eric Nixick's been doing with Francis Ngannou. Uh, Eric Nixick, of course, uh, over there at Extreme Couture. Um, Eric really parlaying his experience and kind of... Eric's got a great balance of no bullshit, but also, like, he cares. And he'll let you know he cares, and you'll know that he cares. Not like somebody... You know, people ask how you're doing, and it's just like they're just saying it. Like, Eric's kind of guy, like... He really can, that's why I'm really glad he's really stepped into coaching because he really can balance that genuine care like as a human fucking being, but also parlay experience and kind of that football aspect where, he, you know, he he, he, he comes from, uh, that's kind of his base as well. Um, you know, that no bullshit collegiate football cutthroat attitude as well. And he's putting Ngannou through the ringer. He's put him under duress, making him respond to these things and kind of making Ngannou face those fears. Now, for me, the ultimate test is still going to be not just going through those pacings of pace and deep uh, water, so to speak, but doing so with a grappling threat. He's not going to get that against Rosenstrike here. Even if Rosenstrike wins, it's not going to be from wrestling or grappling. Um, but I do like that Eric Nixick is putting Ngannou through those paces and even said, which, and I think I even heard Ningano say it and echo the same sentiments, is that he's no longer afraid to go to decision. That, in fact, if he goes three rounds hypothetically with Rosenstruck, it would be a good thing. I don't disagree with that thinking. and I, I, I don't think anyone from Eric to Ningano is being disingenuous when they say that. However, I do have that sneaky suspicion that flag went up, though. I go, this one's going to decision, isn't it? This one's going to decision, isn't it? Because we we, we we don't know enough about Rosenstruck, okay? D does he just keep icing guys, or does he, you know, uh, or, or does, you know, do we see what he does, you know, um, the holes that we saw in his last fight where, he, you know, if a guy's not engaging, he gets caught kind of stuck staring and just getting pieced up by um, Alistair Overham the whole time until he can land a Hail Mary shot. You can't keep relying on those Hail Mary shots in MMA. And I don't think he's going to land that on Ngannou. So I actually think, folks, this one's going to go to decision. Um, and I think Francis Ngannou is going to win with his with his with the improvements he's made under the care of Nixick at Extreme Couture there. Leg kicks. And also, I could also see Ngannou using the clinch. Um, like, Alistair Overeem was able to get away with some really lazy entries into the clinch that... Like he, if he was going to get knocked out for anything, he probably should have got knocked out for his entries into the clinch. Now, Overeem's one of the best clinch fighters ever, uh, at heavyweight especially. So no hate there. But as far as entering into that, 
Um, and if you look at it, except for maybe one time, and if you look at it like Overeem allowed Rosenstruck to turn him around with an underhook in order to try to get a trip that he failed on, and then as soon as he failed on it, turned Rosenstruck right back into the fence, which tells me that Rosenstruck really wasn't turning him around in the first place. Um, so you factor in what we see, which what shouldn't be his on, which what should be his on paper weakness in the first place. Like I could see Nangano maybe even just like trying to like get some control time in the, in the cage, you know, against the cage and, you know, it, it being ugly and boring. So that being said, I know it doesn't sound fun, but I'm predicting kind of a slow grinding heavyweight fight with, um, and I shouldn't bet on heavyweight fights, but if you're going to, you know, set a plus 100 over one and a half, I'll take a shot on it because win or lose for Ninganu, I think this fight's going over folks. So, uh, you don't got to follow me off that cliff. It's a heavyweight freaking fight, which is why I only put 0.75 units, uh, uh, for the plus 100 at over 1.5. All right. Um, next fight, Calvin Kata, minus 250. Jeremy Stevens, plus 210. Um, I'll try to be quicker with this one. I got the New England cartel here, Calvin Cater. Uh, the line makes sense. I could see this being a parlay piece for a lot of people. I could see this being a big play for a lot of people too. Because, I again... As much as I love Calvin Cater, I love Jeremy Stevens more. I'm one of the few people who go to bat for Jeremy Stevens. I like his style um, and his attitude, as stubborn as it is. He is that he is the junkyard dog who finally figured out how to work his own chain. You know, that junkyard dog that just gets left out there. It's just grumpy. Fucking is just down to fight with anybody. You don't even know if it's dog or creature. It's just mutant, you know, at this point. But after a while, it figures out how to work its own chain, and it becomes its own character, and that is... Jeremy Stevens, folks. I mean that in a compliment, believe it or not. Uh, however, people who could, who were technical strikers and or could just fight smart with some basic semblance of striking fundamentals and footwork and being able to stay on a bike when they need to have been able to beat Jeremy Stevens. Okay? Uh, I think Calvin Cater, has a, Calvin Cater has a bit of both that. He has Donald Cerrone, Eve Edwards, where he's got the technical chops to hang and beat and po- possibly just outclass Stevens, right? But he also has the the footwork um, and the discipline aspect, like a Hinato Moicano. Um, if he really wants to just, um, if he feels some power he doesn't like at a certain point and wants to go ahead and win on points, I think Calvin Cater can go ahead and do that. The biggest thing Calvin Cater is going to have to watch for, of course, is the leg kicks. We saw I was I was there live in Brooklyn when Hanato Moicano pieced up his legs. Um, it was just kind of an obvious thing that you know, uh, Rollo Rogan was a bit harsh with it, but it was, you know I, I get it. You know it was an obvious thing that in hindsight should have been addressed before that happened at that level. But hey, everybody learns their lessons, man. And Calvin Cater isn't beyond learning his. And you go and fast forward, he sure he gets in a scrap with. But then he, you know, fights Rick Lamas, and uh, you see him gauging those kicks better. And say what you want, Ricardo Lamas. Ricardo Lamas can consistently kick himself with some, some calves and some legs, and um, he was uh, only able to land a couple, if at all. Uh, and the ones he did land allowed Calvin Cater to get his beat and counter off him, and eventually just knock out Rick Lamas in the first round. Then he fights as a beat. Magomed Sharapov, of course, comes on late. 
Uh, real classic fight, both those guys, right? Stevens and Cater coming off. I mean, it, it's kind of fitting they fight each other, which means that now Zabit and Yair really should have to fight each other because uh, they both fought guys that we've been wanting to see in five-round fights that were questioning in those later rounds, and they both got kind of change-ups for one reason or another, kind of at the last minute, that went from five to three. And sure enough, uh, even though some of us were wrong on the picks, I was actually right with the Zabit pick, but uh, wrong with the Stevens pick, although the analysis proved right that, yeah, Stevens was going to pull away, as was Cater in the later rounds. Um... They didn't get that opportunity, but again, you go back to the leg kick theme that I was talking about with Cater against Zabit. He does have a he does have a better radar for it, um, so which tells me he's been working on that. He's gonna need to because Jeremy Stevens will kick the shit out of some legs. However, for as much as Cater's got to protect his legs, Stevens has to protect his body. Um, as tough as Stevens, as durable as he is, we've seen that the body, you know. Uh, it can be a weakness for him. He's got that Mexican chin too, man. That Mexican toughness, as Don King would say. My Mexican brothers and sisters, uh, my Mexican brothers and sisters are so tough. Uh, you know they got those chins, but that doesn't mean they they're impervious to the body. Uh, as I said, it was Cejudo. We see with Stevens, right, with a body kick that was a hellacious body kick from Yair, granted, or the uh, that, that that beautiful left hook from Jose Aldo, and Cater is quietly a, a, a body puncher and who has been sitting down more on his body punches and body attacks. He also has some front kicks and some body kicks as well, folks. So, yeah, man, as much as I like Stevens, it's hard to, to bet against Cater here. Um, maybe it's because I like Stevens so much, I wouldn't take the chalk, even though I don't blame people. Again, I, I figure Cater's going to be a big parlay piece uh, and whatnot. Um and you know what? I don't think he would be bad as far as you fantasy players too for DraftKings because even though like probabilities he's going to win by decision, like I could see this being one of those ones where Cater uh, wins by knockout too. If he can get Stevens at the end of his punches early and often, Stevens might not make the end of the bell um, with this type of technical striker, a la Eve Edwards, keeping him just the perfect end. Granted, that was the most beautiful check hook in the world that I'm referencing, but still, you get my point. Technical striker could be no bueno for my for my boy Stevens there. Um, all right, no plays there, not on the, but not uh, not on the avoid list um, either. Uh, next fight is on the avoid list. Greg Hardy minus two hundred five, Jorgen De Castro minus one seventy three. I like that Jorgen is like has like all like is from like Boston, Mass, and like has all his cornermen from there because the name Jorgen, being unique and cool as it is alone, like you almost have to say it with a Boston accent, Jagen, ah fucking Jagen. You see Jagen over there. Hey, don't fuck with Yagen. He's fucking mopping the floors one second. He's fucking taking your lunch money the next. Fucking comment Scott Pagley used to be the shit. I mean, kindergarten. Sorry, folks. My little Goodwill Honey accent there comes out. But I, I love hearing the corner call his name, Jorgen DeCastro. How can you not root for Jorgen DeCastro? Of course, I'm actually... I ended up picking... Full disclosure. I ended up picking Greg, Greg Hardy here, folks. But how can you not root for Jorgen DeCastro, who is a live dog? I mean, you look at him just like crying after he knocked out Justin Taffa for the bonus. He's like, just let me fight again. I got to change my family's life. Just a humble, hardworking cat. Looks like a festively plump Oompa Loompa just wiping the floors with fools. <laughs> I'm just kidding, Yagen. I mean that with love, brother. Um, and, and, you know, the guy doesn't have great defense, but he keeps his eyes open and counter emphatically. 
Um, he's got leg kicks, which looks like uh, Hardy's boxing stance is ripe for it. I'm going to be looking for that to see if Hardy has uh, adjusted that at all. Because uh, if this goes long, it's going to be ugly, and those leg kicks are going to be some attrition. However, speaking of long, part of the reason why I went with Hardy is because Jorgen is like generously listed at six one, and he's also listed at six foot. And let's be honest, he's generously listed at six foot. Um, Greg Hardy being at six five, six five, and just being the longer, bigger athlete. Um, more pronounced athlete in many ways. I think that length is going to be a big factor. And the fact that we were seeing Hardy jab more, even before, um, again, say what you will, the fact that he takes the fight over in Russia on short notice, uh, isn't allowed to use his inhaler for that one, folks, and then breaks his hand very early in the fight and is stuck using his non-dominant left hand. Even before that in the Ben Sassoli fight, inhaler aside, we still see a lot more lead hand off of Greg Hardy, a lot more work to the body. Again, folks, I'm judging him as a fighter here, not a person. I should have to keep doing that disclaimer. But, like, um, as a fighter, man, I, you know, those are things I like to see. Am I sold like he's going to be the next great heavyweight thing? Like, no, I still don't think that, and I haven't thought that yet. However, he is doing things I like to see. I don't want to see a guy who has a stereotype to be a bully, just go in there and try to get everybody out of there in the first round. I like that he's being more measured. He's using footwork. He's staying on balance. Um, he's getting some left-to-right momentum. You can see him kind of motioning the slip left and right and trying to build off that, whether he's doing it in live exchanges or working his way into these motions. He's getting there, and he's progressing, the, he's progressing in the right direction um, for whatever that's worth, right? And speaking of testing out clinch, like this could be a fight where he does that too, because Jorgen DeCastro, again, he looks like you know Justin Taffa, who's not really a grappler, was able to pin him with no resistance against the fence. Like we saw Greg Hardy change levels for a devil, but kind of get scared in committing to it um, against Volkov. But he got in and entered space actually pretty good and just fine, I would say. Um, if Greg Hardy decides to do that, and even if, again, he decides to not want to go to the takedown but wants to just push to the fence, like I think he can do that as kind of a, a safety measure of sorts to buy him some time, regroup, gather himself, take a breath. Uh, and then he's got his long jab uh, that I think is going to be able to keep distance with Jorgen. However, if Jorgen is able to get on the inside and, and or hit leg kicks, um, it's going to be troublesome. You know, Hardy had to change up his camp. It sounded like it was turmoil, but when a journalist finally followed up in the scrum and asked him, it's, Greg Hardy said it was more toward just the COVID and travel and stuff of him no longer working with Dim Thomas. But Dim Thomas, I think, also kind of separated him with his own gym. I didn't follow that too closely, but I think he made it kind of a move in general. I don't know if that was specifically toward Hardy, but Hardy did lose Daniel Jolly, who was in his corner in his last fight and has been kind of a mentor for him. Daniel Jolly, you know, not the most successful or big-name competitor, but an MMA fighter who made it to the UFC nonetheless. So, of course, somebody who could impart decent knowledge to Hardy. And you see him in uh, Hardy's corner for the Volkov fight over in Russia when Din wasn't there. So now he's going to have neither guy. That's going to be interesting. You know, he's been training in Dallas, Texas for this, according to him. What's he been doing there? Hopefully, again, it's been working on avoiding leg kicks because say what you want about this Jorgen DeCastro, but it doesn't look like Jorgen needs very much of a good camp. Uh, this guy can get off the couch and we'll, we'll fight for his fucking money, Jorgen will. So more props to Jorgen. It's dog or pass, in my opinion. 
and with the over being at minus 150 for over 250, which I don't disagree with. I'm just kind of surprised that it got to minus money. But, yeah, I think this is going to go long and ugly. Uh, but I think Greg Hardy is going to get the nod, folks. All right, um, next fight. Didn't watch tape on this, but we know these fighters pretty well. Anthony Pettis, minus 138. Comeback on Donald Cerrone, plus 118. This is one of the only fights that's not going in their normal weight classes, albeit both guys have a history of competing at 170. Cerrone more, obviously. Um, But yeah, uh, I, I can't disagree with this line, but this fight is on the avoid list for me because it's like... Both guys are getting in there just to blow off some steam. It's like they're both out of a bad relationship. They need that rebound sex. Pardon my French here, folks, you know. But they both have, honestly, though, they both have that mentality going in. They they want to get that bad taste out of their mouth. You know what I'm saying? And, uh, okay, let's not go too far with the sex analogies now <laughs> after I said that. Uh, but, uh, but yeah, they want to they wanna turn it around. Um, okay, well, wow, Dan. <laughs> I'm running out. I am dancing all around the analogies, the sexual analogies, and distracting myself because I am nine years old at heart, folks. Um, and yeah, who 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 the fuck knows what you're gonna get? Um, I feel like Donald Cerrone should win this just because he, 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 you know, this feels like his wheelhouse. And mentally, you know, he might have a some type of edge, uh, you know, in that regard, right? Again. If I'm going by my own advice, not to be a hypocrite, siding with the um, uh, the more mental guys and the more athletic ones. But then again, you know, you could criticize Donald Cerrone's mental as well with what he just said, right? It's like it's like a double-edged sword. Um, and I believe, like, I saw someone tweet, was it Zane Simon, who said, like, Cerrone's progressed more, but does it matter if Pettis comes at him and just goes for his body again? You know? Uh, and here I am always picking. You would think I'm, like, Pettis' number one fan with how much I pick him. And I, all I'm doing is really cursing the guy because anytime like I pick him, it's only because like I actually like you know what whether he's a favorite or the, the underdog, I don't feel like the odds are like representing it fairly, and then I'll feel like I'll be able to pluck some actual facts that make a good case, um, that go against the odds slash what the majority of people are saying. So I'm like, yeah, you know what I mean? Let me uh, step up for Pettis here, uh, and then he will go ahead and do the exact Anthony Pettis stereotype things and falter under pressure, et cetera, et cetera, back up to the fence, et cetera, et cetera, injure himself between rounds, et cetera, et cetera. That being said, I'm going to pick Anthony Pettis again. <laughs> so if anything, Anthony Pettis and people who support him are going to hate me at this point. Like, Stop fucking cursing him, Dan, which means Cerrone's probably going to win. Dog or pass here, folks. It's on the avoid list for a reason. I'm, I'm going to pick Pettis. Fucking who knows? Who the fuck knows in that fight? Speaking of who the fuck knows, you got Fabricio Verdum at minus 330. Coming in on a heavyweight fight off a massive layoff, but hey, I guess I can see why. Because we got Alexi Sexy Olenek. Come back on him, plus 270. Um, Looking like, you know, a character from Small Soldiers there. Alexi Olenek with his mohawk. Fucking him and Dan Kelly with the title of guys who you think their knees are going to blow out during their walk to the ring. Uh, no offense, shouts to Dan Kelly. Love Dan Kelly. But, um, but yeah, Verdum looking in great shape, like training at elevation. He's slim face Verdum. Because you know Verdum, man, he can come in in good shape, not so good shape. We'll see. It's, all, it's also hard to tell until he takes his, his shirt off because he's got that deceptive uh, midsection. He's a heavyweight, folks, and who am I to fucking talk? I'm not hating. I'm just saying. I'm just saying, all right? 
But it looks like Verdun has been itching, taking this seriously, maybe because he realizes that he pissed away his opportunity to go down as the best heavyweight ever by fighting stupidly against Stipe in Brazil and then going and fighting stupidly after that. Which I... That's Verdun for you, folks. Um... So, there's almost for sure going to be weirdness, but at the same time, like, if Verdun pieced them up on the floor or on the feet, would you really be surprised? Like, that's probably what's going to happen. They're do-or-die fighters. However, between the weirdness factor to Alexei Olenek fighting um, on his best days uh, and being able to s- defend submissions on his best days, um, maybe he extends this fight, oh, makes it go long? I don't know. It's really hard Um to bet inside, outside, overs, or unders. But I'm going to take Verdum, and even though it's weird and I just pinned a bunch of flags in this fight and I cited the example that I always cite, which will make me a hypocrite, that you should stay away from heavyweight fights with over a 2.5 to 3-1 to one spread. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and say Fabrizio Doom is is one piece of a two-piece parlay uh, that I'm doing for fun here. Again, folks, don't follow me off the cliff, but... We haven't been able to bet in a while, so uh, I'm betting a little more liberally. Uh, and uh, we're going to do a fun parlay. And Fabricio Verdum is one part of a plus money parlay. Minus 330, of course, is the chalky part of that, right? All right. Next fight. Uh, Carles Barza. Pinche Fresa. Michelle Watterson. Plus 125. I don't know why I said, said that uh, after saying Carlos Barza. That wasn't toward Carlos Barza. I just I don't know why I have that. It's like the... the I think because I, I recently watched uh, Pineapple Express, and in the opening, they pull up to the car, and like that Mexican dude in the lowrider says that to Seth Rogen, calls him that. But no, I actually like Carlos Barza, and I'm picking her here. I know, Dan. Like, see, see folks, I'm, it's not all about bias, because if it was, I'd be going with like the traditional martial artists, the Asian-American. No, no, uh, I'm going with Carlos Barza here. Uh, no offense to Michelle Watterson. Ma, mom, she... Yeah, um, you know she's got her thing going on. Appreciate that the, the whole mom champ deal. Good on her, but uh, I don't know. Um, didn't sound like she was getting that great of training. She just pretty much was just training with just her husband for the most part in their home gym. Um, I didn't go back and watch tape. I didn't go back and we watched that Yan Jacek fight. I didn't go back and watch Asparza's fights, but I just think Asparza can stay out of the opportunistic uh, submissions and control the wrestling and. Um, as long as she avoids getting hit with a flush head kick, I think she should be fine. Uh, Carla plays in and out pretty well. Um, outside of when she can't take the, get the takedown and is forced to strike with uh, a prime uh, Ioannia and Jacek. Yeah, uh, I like Aspars here. I thought she was going to be the dog, which sucks. Um, in my early leans, I was hoping she was, but she actually opened as uh, a slight favorite and then a little bit of money came in on her. So it, that actually kept me away, to be honest. Maybe if I go look at it, uh, if I make time to watch some tape, maybe I'll end up playing some chalk on Asparza. But I, I stayed away with the picks of Asparza. I don't blame you if you're playing her. But sticking true to my word, this is probably more of a dog or pass matchup on principle. Oh, frog in my throat. Um, next fight, Ronaldo Souza minus 130, Uriah Hall plus 110. I'm surprised to see this line this tight and... With that being said, and me being a Ronaldo Souza fan, that must mean I'm picking and should be playing out of principle Jacare Souza to choke some fools out, right? No. No, actually. I'm hoping for it, 
But I'm actually picking Uriah Hall, man. I got a weird feeling on this upset. I know uh, mental is a weird perspective, and I feel like people are a bit harsh on Uriah Hall, uh, although he doesn't exactly do himself any favors as far as ingratiating himself to the media or otherwise. Um, uh, so that being said, it's kind of weird that I'm picking him, both stylistically and also from the mental and tangible standpoint that I, I, I posed for this card. But, man, maybe it's the uh, rat shit in Calcutta vibes I'm getting. Shout out to the MMA analysis. Apparently, they posted a clip from that legendary uh, <laughs> clip. I know I always shout this podcast, but essentially, just in short, folks, they, they're they a uh, gambling betting podcast, and, and one of the uh, older members of it back in the day, when Uriah Hall fought Musasi on a short notice, said that if Uriah Hall beat Musasi, he would eat uh, rat shit in Calcutta. Uh, and sure enough... Uriah Hall lands the spinning shit, right? I mean, so that's just a classic moment for their show, so I wanted to give him a shout, but also because I wanted to cite that because maybe it's the vibes of that being burnt in my head as well, being privy to that. Like, I have... And, and if that was the case, I would say this for every Uriah Hall fight. I'd probably pick against Uriah Hall way more than I pick pick him. Um, But I just got... I, I don't know why, folks. I, I see him knocking out um, Ronaldo Susan. Maybe it's the Fortis MMA rub. He's had good training for this fight as far as, you know, coming from a good camp and fighting with another guy who's on this card who we'll talk about very shortly in Ryan Spann. Um, who, by the way, you go to Ryan Spann's uh, Instagram, he looks like he's being very moody for his weight cut. But Uriah Hall, who's had some very bad weight cuts, ironically in a time where, by the way, I'm, I'm projecting a lot of people to miss weight. So if you're listening to this after the weight cut and people have missed weight, uh, I'm sorry, but also for what it's worth, I'm taking that into account with this breakdown because this is an unprecedented card. So all those factors being said, seeing Uriah Hall show up in Ryan's band stories all like happy and looking in great shape and in good spirits. Well, let's just say that seems like that's half the battle for a guy like Uriah Hall, whereas Ronaldo Souza, pretty quiet on the social media fronts, albeit I believe he's got to have part ownership in that ex-gym um, affiliate over in Florida in his new residence, right? I don't know. Hoping for Souza, but it's it's dogger pass, and I sprinkled a half unit on the dog at a plus one fifteen. I hope I'm wrong. I would not mind losing money on this one. Um, next fight: Vincente Luque minus two eighty. Nico Price, spring break, spring break for Elva. Uh, of course, Nico Price looks like James Franco's character from Spring Breakers. Uh, come back on him plus two forty. I got shorts. Every fucking color. Look at my shit. Look at all my shit. The fuck? We missed the... By the way, we should be doing... It should be Nico Price versus Mike Perry. I mean, like, there should be three titles in this card. I mean, the Jacksonville... They could have had Nico Price versus Mike Perry headlining one of these things for the Florida Man title. Get some alligator skin. Um, you know, and instead of... For the belt, right? For the leather. And then maybe instead of gold plating, we just use... Um, uh, plastic from prescription bottles. <laughs> Pain meds, the Florida man title. <laughs> Jesus Christ. I got shorts every fucking color. Uh, for that reason alone, like, Nico Price should probably win this fight, even though he lost the first one. And I don't know why. Maybe because I went with those weird vibes of, like, the weird Nico Price, intangible short notice. Um, Nico's going to, which wasn't a really bad beat if you look at it. Unfortunately, I think I might have went with that for no damn reason when they first fought and picked against my guy Luque, which made no damn sense. I don't know why I did that. 
um, and we saw what happened. So, of course, even with the pandemic lining up for a, a classic Nico Price upset, I still can't pull the trigger. In fact, not only am I going to pick Vincente Luque to learn his lessons, even though, you know, you could say that Stephen Thompson loosened that chin and it just takes one Nico Price shot, and if that number keep, if the number keeps climbing to plus 250, y'all should be playing Nico Price. That being said... Win or lose, Nico Price is a do-or-die fighter. I think we can all agree on that. So, if Nico Price doesn't win, not only is he going to lose, he's going to lose inside the distance, right? Again, if you're a Nico Price supporter, I love Nico Price. I'm not hating on him. But if you're a Nico Price supporter more ways than one, I think even you can agree on that. So, I actually went and took the uh, low chalk at like minus 135 or what it was for uh, Vincente Luque inside the distance. And I use that for my parlay piece. I know this is a very five dimes y parlay uh, that I'm using. I'm using a prop here, folks. But I didn't want to go to three leg. I wanted to keep it to just two. I'm trying to keep them just two when I can if I do do these for fun parlays. But if you do do those two chocks of Luke inside the distance in Verdum, you, you, you take the two Brazilians over the two Florida residents, that'll get you plus 1.05 and i put a whole unit on that for plus money that two leg parlay for doom and luke inside the distance follow at your own risk speaking of following at your own risk we got uh bryce mitchell minus 165 speaking of you know crazy characters with the uh, with a southern draw uh versus charles boston strong yo 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 this is mental from boston mass um, Charles Boston Strong Rosa plus one forty five. They're putting they're putting plus money on Charles Rosa. They're forgetting that he got into this game as a jiu jitsu black belt. And uh, these guys who aren't even black belts, who don't even have the same MMA, jiu jitsu, or grappling experience, they keep putting these guys as the favorites of Charles Rosa. Uh, Charles Rosa paid me off against Manny Bermudez last time when he tapped out the guy who was supposed to be the submission specialist. Although it wasn't too hard to look up that he was just a purple belt. I think Bryce Mitchell is a... Shouts to my man, John Morgan Ford, and me the bios, and I'm not even using them here. I'm an idiot. Um, but, uh, yeah, I don't even think Bryce Mitchell is even ranked that high. I'm, I'm still not sold on him. Kind of like, uh, again, citing a tweet to the Twitter sphere here. Shouts to my dude, Benny Abs, ben, Benny Abrigo there, where I fan cited. Uh, I'm not sold on Bryce Mitchell either. I got Boston Strong Charles Rosa. Say what you will about his karate-like in-and-out stand-up. The dude is tough, and he would have kept going if the ref didn't stop it. Not trying to take anything away from Shane Burgos, Sugar Shane Burgos, who I love his style as well. But I'm just saying it's very tough, and for what it's worth, uh, he's very tough and durable. Uh, and for what it's worth, the in-and-out style uh, can at least keep him safe until he can pick his spots for offense, whether it be on the feet or on the floor. Um, I got Charles Rosa by scorecards or by submission at plus money. I threw a unit on Mr. Rosa at plus 145. I took a shot there. Um, all right. Let's see. Hey! I'm not going to pull out the uh, bios. I can't find it. I'm a dumbass. Ryan Spann minus 440. Sam Alvey come back on him plus 350. Um, it's tough. I didn't do any any study on this one, but, man, uh, Spann's been taking out my dudes from Little Nog onward. Um, well, at least with Little Nog, I should say. Um, and, uh, yeah, man, his last fight he took on. Oh, yeah, he took, he took out a Devin Brown. Come on, Devin. 
Uh, last time we got the guillotine, which I called for that one. So thank you, Mr. Span. Um, you know, Sam Alvey's been good, been good to me, man. He's been on this program before from back in the day. He used to host a podcast with a, a co-host with the mostest who I have on here a lot, Jordan Killian. Uh, it's been good to uh, us on Junkie Radio when he's came on there. Um, but man, uh, whether it's uh, in or outside of the cage, Sam makes some outlandish choices and, uh, you know, uh, some, some stubborn ones uh, at that. And I think that's fair to say. And um, they haven't panned out great for him. Um, so even though, you know, one of my favorite things in MMA is seeing Sam Alvey get a knockout that he wasn't supposed to get and just silence the crowd. That's always a good time. And worth a good laugh. And plus 350, boy, would that be a good payoff. But as tempting as the line is, I, I got to go with Span here. Superman Span, who's found his groove since that Contender Series lost. loss. Um, sure, he could be knocked out as well, which he's going to have to be careful off the break against a guy like Sam Alvey from that southpaw position. Position. Position, yeah, because last time he got knocked out was by a southpaw, although he has, again, knocked out southpaws himself. And little nog. <laughs> um, sorry. A little sad there. So, yeah, I'm going to go with uh, Ryan Spann. Um, there is a play here, though, that doesn't revolve around either man winning. It's over 1.5 rounds at minus 135. I think Alvi, one thing Alvi does is he does make fights really ugly. And um, Ryan's, you know, Ryan's band, the, the, the places where he can finish the fight is also where Alvy's going to be most dangerous. And Alvy has underrated takedown defense and clinch fighting. Uh, what people always seem to forget, he's very strong there, quietly. Uh, so I think Alvy make, even though I, I, I can't side with him to win, I do think that he makes it an ugly fight, which Alvy does win or lose. It's one of the most things he's dependable on in him, right? Whether you love him or hate him, I think we can all agree on that. Uh, so you're going to give me minus 135 for an over that I think is going to be very easy to hit in what's going to be an ugly middleweight fight at light heavyweight? Yeah, I'll take a shot on that. Um, I took a a unit shot on that chalk um, for minus 135. Span, uh, span Alvi over. Uh, all right, folks, before I recap picks and plays, I just want to um, thank everyone again. Uh, apologies for a bit of a long breakdown episode here, but thank you guys again for uh, supporting, uh, getting a lot of support, um, a lot of kind words, whether it's from tweets or supporting the podcast, sharing it, uh, subscribing, hitting subscribe, uh, five-star ratings and reviews on Apple Podcasts, those things, they don't cost you anything, they mean the world, I don't spam your feeds, and it means a whole lot to hopefully maybe tackling down some advertising for this bad boy so I can continue to keep it free again, folks. Breaking down cards from top to bottom in detail. Been doing it for years. It's been free for years. Doing top five shows where like I study and I prep and I pull my hair. I prep, prep for these shows as well. I prep for all this stuff and I keep it all for free. I'm adding live MMA chats, interactive recaps. Going to be doing watch-along fight and movie commentaries. All will be for free, although eventually maybe I will start a Patreon to, to get some support because we don't make a lot in this industry, folks, so we got to find ways to make money somehow. That being said, whichever way I go, I can guarantee these fight picks and 99% to 90% of the content on this podcast will always remain free. I will fight to do so. All I ask in return is if if only if you like the podcast, support, share, 
Subscribe on the YouTube. We are now on YouTube, folks. www.youtube.com forward slash Daniel Tom MMA. Daniel Tom MMA is the channel. When you search that, it will come up. Do have the URL now. We're getting backgrounds. Going to get graphics and getting the Skypes and all these things. Uh, getting more of a productive and interactive base on there. Thank you guys for clicking through. Um, any of the banners we've been getting, I don't want to name off everything, but there's been a lot. I'll have to name them off on another show. Um, everyone's been using Amazon and on it. So if you go to mixedmarshallanalyst.com, the, the, the website that hosts this here podcast, there are click through banners on the side. You just click through Amazon, you go about your shopping, you click through on it, you go get your hemp proteins, your vitamin C, all that useful stuff. You buy it. You don't get charged an extra penny, and a small percentage of your purchase goes back to this podcast, which helps support it, keeps it running, keeps it free for your content, entertainment, uh, advice, etc., which you can always email the podcast, email me, uh, danieltommma at gmail.com, at dantommma. Follow the podcast, won't spam your feeds on all social platforms, at the PYN podcast, and if you really want to just go over the top and donate money straight up, you can always do that. We have a PayPal donation, mixedmarshallanalyst.com. Again, folks, vote with your dollars, vote with your clicks. You, you don't want clickbait stuff, you want in-depth stuff, support it. It's hard, it costs money. I am spending money to not necessarily make money right now, that's okay. I love this, I do it for a passion, and uh, hopefully I can continue to keep providing this free service for you. So recapping the picks, we got Tony Ferguson over. I got I got J Tony Ferguson over Justin Gaethje, taking Henry Cejudo over Dominic Cruz, taking or taking Dominic Cruz over Henry Cejudo. Sorry, taking Francis Ngannou over Jorginho Rosenstruck, taking Calvin Cater over Jeremy Stevens, taking Greg Hardy over Yagen De Castro, taking Anthony Pettis uh, over Donald Cerrone. I guess. Taking Fabricio Verdum over Sexy Alexi Olenek. Taking Carla Esparza over Michelle Waterson. Manche. Taking Uriah Hall over Ronaldo Jacare Souza. Taking Vicente Luque over Nico Price. Spring break for Elva. Taking Charles Boston Strong. Rosa over Bryce Mitchell. Taking Ryan Spann over Sam Alvey. For a fun parlay, don't follow me off the cliff. Verdum and Luke inside the distance at one unit for plus 1.05. Took a shot on Charles Rosa at one unit at plus 145. Uh, took a bias shot on Cruz at plus 180, half a unit. Don't follow me off that cliff. Took a shot that I'm somewhat rooting against myself at at Uriah Hall for half a unit at plus 115. Props that I played were both overs. Uh, heavyweight over. Haganu, as my man Wes Colvin says, and Rosenstruck over 1.5 plus 100. I put 0.75 units on that. Ryan Spann, Sam Alvey went over 1.5 at minus 135. I put a unit on that. On my avoid list to Castro Hardy, Cerrone Pettis, and Waterson Esparza because I did not do the uh, research. Again, thank you. Thank you for checking out the Mixed Martial Analyst click-throughs for Amazon on it, whether it's the PayPal banner, helping me keep this free. Appreciate the crap out of you guys. It's good to be back. Hopefully everybody stays healthy, whether it's at the fights or at home. Enjoy the entertainment. Be kind to one another. And always protect your necks.